Good evening. You are listening to a Rattleage and Broadcasting Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattleage. And tonight, our favorite show is Midnight Mass, brought to you by the good people at Intrepid Pictures and Netflix. And I want to thank them for not having a million production companies for me to read out and possibly mess up the names of. Joining uh, me, possibly, <laughs> probably, <laughs> undoubtedly, indefinitely, um, indefinitely. I don't Indef- think that's the right. You keep using that word. I do not think that is the correct word. Indef- trying to say you're trying to say indubitably, indubitably, indefinitely, absolutely. Joining me on this podcast is the one and only Benjamin J. Cologne on all the things. How do you do, Ben? Hey, how's it going? Um, I'm trying. I'm good. I'm trying to work my way out of being distracted by the glare from my own glasses right now. This is weird. <laughs> We're with you, buddy. Speaking of being distracted by the glare in her own glasses, the dog master herself from uh, from from Honeysuckle Rose Creations. It's Alexis Haina. How do you do, madam? Uh, it's officially a podcast because I've already had Cleo trying to eat my hand. Absolutely, indubitably, was- indefinitely, indub- in in. Yeah, she's getting to her cameo a little early tonight, enjoying enjoying one of her marrow bones. And of, Cleo. and of course, from 401 Mania and any damn podcast he chooses, no time for the nonsense, Robert <laughs> no, Winfrey. Don't. don't. <laughs> that, he that has is... no time for this nonsense, no time for your shenanigans, no that, time for this tomfoolery. That wound is still too fresh. <laughs> do you say, do, save the massacre for tomorrow night, boys. <laughs> Yeah, tomorrow. We'll be discussing No Time to Die tomorrow, which I saw tonight ahead of... Normally, I watch those movies on Tuesday, but it turns out the earliest showing is 2 o'clock, and I have stuff to do around 4 and... at both 4 and 5. So I either had to choose to watch it today or tomorrow and miss out on other things that I would rather be doing. So suffice to say, I got sucked into the time vortex of the latest James Bond movie today. Speaking of time vortexes, Benjamin J. Cologne. It has been quite some time. <laughs> I am the awesome, I am still awesome at transitions and segues. Um, you um, listening back to a lot of our archive BTR rattling and broadcasting stuff. You definitely made your appearances hither and thither. Rob shows my shows, his shows that shows. Uh, but we seldom see you anymore. And as I was walking into Je- Dear Evan Hansen with my daughter on our daddy-daughter date, I get this message from one Benjamin J. Cologne who calls me out of the blue and says, have you heard about this Midnight Mass thing? And I went, great, triple feature. We'll do Midnight Mass, another movie, and another movie. And he says, no, you idiot. It's it's a television show on Netflix. I'm like, well, I clearly haven't heard of it then. Well, I do say that. <laughs> I, I do say you idiot a lot, don't I? <laughs> um. So, yeah, this was your pitch. You were excited about it, excited enough to contact me and say, hey, can we talk about this? So what got you um, what got you interested in the show enough to want to talk about it on a podcast? Um, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm a big Mike Flanagan fan. I don't think I've seen anything that he's done that I haven't at least liked, if not loved. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the the least of what I've seen of his that I liked is uh, Dr. Sleep. And I, I you know... We talked a little bit about that online. I think 
I've heard Robert's thoughts about it. I don't entirely disagree. Um, but uh, everything else he's done, especially in, you know, as far as the Netflix stuff, uh, Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, like that, that was some very welcome salvation last year during during lockdown time for me because it was like I'm, I'm looking for something you know to kind of sink my teeth into so it had me really eagerly like awaiting when he when, when his next project was going to be because it was uh, supposedly going to be something completely different and midnight math was not completely different but it was different enough in all the right ways and it was similar enough to stuff that he had done previously in all the right ways as well so i was really kind of anticipating that i didn't realize it you know it had already come out i think a friend of mine you know was talking about it and said that it was really good i'm like wait a minute that's out already and i like you know immediately dropped everything i was doing and jumped on netflix and started watching it i mean you don't have a color-coded google schedule to tell you when things are coming out so that you can <laughs> podcast about them because i thought everyone did no Mark. yeah <laughs> yeah if only they had something like that for tv could be almost a, it could be like a guide of some kind but uh nah, that's, just even, crazy. that's just crazy that's just even talk. make it a monthly publication this <laughs> is crazy talk well good I'm, I'm glad to have you um i'm hoping um people disappear for a while and then they get on one podcast and they get bit by the bug and then they're on every show so we hope you have you back soon um well, here's the other thing. It's funny because I, I keep forgetting this, and um, you guys are gonna hear uh, you guys are gonna hear me in about two months. Uh, earlier this summer, I recorded, you know, with with Jesse. We kind of brought the band back together to talk about Spider Man because uh, I always invite yeah. myself over for <laughs> Spider Man related stuff when it comes to when, when he's doing an episode of Source Material. You're gonna be on two shows. His nine. Ep episode epic on Spider-Verse that you guys did, I, which I need to talk about in just a second. Yes. But also a Long Road to Ruin special where you, me, and Sean are going to compare the three different Spider-Man trilogies, uh, Spider-Man franchises. That's but, uh, coming. That's coming up. But the funny thing is we already recorded the Spider-Verse episode. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't remember a whole lot of that episode uh, because uh, I think I was like, I, I think I... By the time it was over, I think I was, you know, five sixths of a six pack, you know, down, <laughs> and um, I didn't think that was, I, you know, I didn't think that uh, that I had that in me. I want to, so, I want to know what substances you'll be ingesting if we ever bring you on to talk about one day more, um, oh, or one more day, or one, one more day, or whatever it's called. So just, just really <laughs> I was like, did you just confuse? Uh, Yes. Joe Casada with Les Les Miserables. Miserables. Sure did. <laughs> it's it's look, a, it's a common mistake. They both have they both invoke feelings of misery for entirely different reasons. And they're Jesse, both tools of the devil. <laughs> Jesse rarely asks me for anything. He, you know, we, we we collaborate, we share, we compromise, but he rarely says I need. And he was like, Benjamin and I talked about Spider-Verse. This thing is 12 hours long, and, and I need 16 weeks freed up from for this podcast after editing and i was like sure um that's a slight exaggeration he asked me for four days instead of the typical one and he got it but i was like jesus christ how long was this podcast Thinking it wasn't as long it wasn't as long as you might think uh we could have gone longer trust me Oof. I was, uh, i'm impressed i'm impressed that we made it we kept it as succinct as it as it, as it was for what it was we were talking about well I, i'm looking forward to benjamin j cologne week on on the rattledge and broadcasting network 
With that said, uh, Midnight Mass is an American supernatural horror streaming TV miniseries created and directed by the aforementioned Mike Flanagan, starring Zach Gelford, Katie Se uh, Siegel, Hamish Linkletter of The Newsroom, and many other things, Samantha Sloyan, Rahul Kohli, and Henry Thomas. The plot centers on an isolated island community, kind of like a Stephen King thing, huh, Ben? Huh? Huh? Kind of like a Stephen King thing, huh? Get Just used to uh, get used to all of us mentioning, uh, you know, parallel <laughs> Stephen King parallels. Yeah, that's my, my T-shirt choice was not accidental. <laughs> it's that neck and neck. It's neck and neck at this point between who like Stephen King's heir apparent is, and it's either Mike Flanagan or Stephen King's own son. And I'm not sure which one is going to come out with you know the actual next Stephen King mantle. The mainstream press has also made a lot of comparisons to Stephen King, so it seems to be leaning in Mike Flanagan's direction. I. I Go ahead. Um, I said, you know, my my one word, my one sentence review of Midnight Mass in its entirety is it's the best Stephen King's uh, story that Stephen King never actually wrote. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that actually came from a. I, I, I know you said it independently, but somebody else, uh, Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun Times, said it's the best Stephen King story Stephen King never wrote. Oh God, I said something <laughs> that I, I corroborated Richard word Roper. For word, my friend. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, supernatural isolated community experiencing events after the arrival of a mysterious priest it was released september 24th of 2021 in mostly positive reviews all right episode one so we can get on with this book one genesis riley flynn returns to his home of crocodile in a tiny offshore fishing village after serving four years in prison for drunk driving uh crash that killed a young woman having lost his faith uh during his incarceration riley struggles to reintegrate with the town's devout Catholic community, which includes his parents, Annie and Ed, teenage brother Warren, childhood sweetheart Erin Green, who has returned to Crockett Island pregnant and is now working as a school teacher, zealous parishioner Bev Keen, my favorite character in this entire piece, besides uh, yeah. besides Father Paul Hill. She and would be your favorite, wouldn't she's she? Awesome. We and, have, I was going to say, we have a new entry for one of the greatest villains ever in a miniseries, gentlemen. I can't wait to talk about the last few minutes of this, just so, just like in great, just like in rave about Bev Keen's performance, which is phenomenal. A newcomer who is temporarily replacing the aging Monsignor Pruitt, uh, whose whereabouts only Father Paul seems to know. The town is reeling economically after an oil spill that crippled its fishing industry. While out at night to drink and smoke marijuana with his friends, Uker and Ali, Warren spots strange movement in a remote island area populated by feral cats, meow, which are later mauled by an unseen entity. The following night, Riley sees the figure of Monsieur Pruitt walking along the beach amidst a raging storm, but the figure soon vanishes the next morning. Hundreds of dead cats are discovered along the beach to the joy of many dogs. All right, Alexis. Speaking of the joy of many dogs, why don't you hit, uh, start us off here? What do you think of episode one? Definitely got me hooked. It was it was interesting. You get a really good sense of identity with the island, the community, uh, their incredible uh, tightness of religion. You get a really good sense of Riley as a character too. Just the scene alone of him sitting handcuffed on the ground, watching the other girl die in the car wreck, and he starts saying the Lord's prayer. That scene alone gave Cross just so much character. We knew so much about this guy from that moment alone. It was really well done. Uh, fun little fact, the judge who hands down the verdict is voiced by Carla uh, Gugi or, uh, Gugino, I think is how it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. Another uh, frequent collaborator on Flanagan's work. Uh, you 
automatically hate Bev Keen pretty damn quickly, which is impressive. We'll get more to I'll get more into her later on as we watch. But uh, like I said, I really love how well they build up the environment of this little island. Robert, episode one. Uh, Bev Keen is one of the most effective hate sinks that's been put to television in quite some time. Okay. Uh, I like, I, I agree with the Riley character. We get a lot of, he's, the actor's able to do a lot with what he's given, and he's given a fair bit for a few more episodes, and we'll get into that when we get into it. Um, you, if you're familiar enough with kind of these types of stories, you know what's up in this story by the time this episode ends. And I don't mean that as a negative, just so much as this movie, this movie, this show is not about twists and turns in the traditional sense of the word uh i mean as soon as the guy that we reveal to be uh the monsignor is dragging that big old crate up into the house you know what's coming mm -hmm. uh, vampires always seem to come in a big box whether that's dracula arriving in london in his crate on the shipwreck or most recently uh ellie from let the right one in and the poor old man who's dragging her around in a box but because she can't go out in the sun either they always seem to show up in these big crates so as soon as he's lugging that thing in and then knocks on it and the box knocks back uh this is you might as well have a big giant sign that says vampire <laughs> and that's not a negative thing you know, establishing what your audience should be expecting out of your story is not at all a, a terrible thing uh you get some decent enough scares here. I like most of the scares in this movie, uh, in the series, because they're not, they're not jump scares in the traditional sense of the word. They don't have the, they don't start here and then slowly get quieter and quieter and we get a pause and then bah! <laughs> you, there, it's a lot more trying to watch stuff off that's a little bit off center, a little bit out of focus in the background. And that's a more effective way to scare people. Like, I mean, you can startle anyone with a loud noise, but if you want to actually scare them, you do want to engage them beyond dropping a pan. <laughs> All right, Ben, what'd you think of this first episode? Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the, uh, the first episode, um, you know, I'm going to do my best not to make too many Stephen King illusions, but like you get the sense of you get the sense of all of the, you know, chess pieces and, and the chess board right away. And, it, and if you've, you know, if you've read enough, enough Stephen King and you've read enough, you know, <laughs> then uh, I was going to say, I have lost count of how many tweets I've seen that said, well, if you wanted to write Salem's Lot, why didn't he just do Salem's Lot? Um. There's there's similarities, but then again, Salem's Lot was basically like a modern retread of Dracula, anyway. So you know, it all goes, it, it all kind of goes back to Dracula uh, in the first place. But if you've seen enough of this this stuff, then you you have a sense of where it's going, and you also have a sense of what uh, what to expect from a lot of the characters. And um, you know, you've got you've got your you know you've got your archetypes, and there are some you know there there are some that are a little uh that surprise you a little bit uh as we go along but you're you're left with an and, and i like the the beginning part of the show where it's 
it's a very effective device where you're basically taking a tour of the entire island through the eyes of the, the, the teenage boys on their bikes. Um, that's a that that's a pretty you know solid narrative uh, device to be able to you know you see everything as they do. You get to see the neighborhood. You get to see the uh, you know the the uh, the wharf where like you know where all the shit is clearly a fishing town. I'm still unclear as to whether that's like New England or like like Pacific Northwest. I, I don't know could if even it was be, ever mentioned. It could even be Gulf Coast. They really don't specify at all. Like we don't have the accents that would necessarily indicate that. But I think there's a few too many sweaters for it to be Gulf Coast. If, I got the impression. I feel like from some of the dialogue that I heard, I thought they said it was the Pacific Northwest. Okay. I mean, either way makes sense to me because there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's plenty of, there's plenty of those type of places, oh, and yeah. those type of islands oh, yeah. uh, on either coast, even, you know, as far south as like, you know, the Carolinas, you'd find stuff you find. Oh, you like can that. still, you can still head off the Carolinas and try to find Blackbeard's treasure if you're so inclined. <laughs> and one day I will. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you uh, you're introduced to all the principles. You, you're introduced to uh, you know uh, what role the church plays, and you know uh, the uh, Catholic Church plays in, in each character's life. And uh, we drop you know poor Riley back in after you know four years in jail, uh, and he comes out a very different person than when he went in. And he's kind of the odd man out. He's not the only odd one out in town as he soon finds out when he kind of re reunites with um, Aaron. Um, but, uh, you know, he's definitely feeling like an outsider in, you know, in his own town. And um, that also does does a good job of, uh, you know, setting him up as the as what we think is the audience proxy. And he is for, you know, the amount of time that he's an active uh, character. Uh, People forget how short this miniseries is because they're like, because I mean, yeah, obviously spoilers. Riley dies off only five episodes in, which for us feels like, wow, that's so soon. This is only a seven episode series. Yeah. So he's in it for most of it, but we still feel like he was killed off super early. I um, my the way I framed it in my own mind watching this was it was, it was basically a seven hour movie, which my mm -hmm. only comment for this first episode, I'm going to throw it back to you, Ben, to, to finish up, is if it's a seven hour movie, we have a lot of act one to get through before we get to act two. And so it would make sense for this to be a slow burn. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, it got a lot of praise and there's definitely a lot of buzz about it on social media, but I'm wondering how many people this lost because of the, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to say something negative about the show by saying like, Oh, nothing happens in the first episode, but I'm just thinking about the average person who watches this expecting, you know, when, when Ben said, Oh, it's a horror show. I was expecting more in the first episode than what I got. And that's why I had to take it. I had to kind of reframe my thinking about it and go, oh, okay, nothing's going to happen for the first little bit here. And, and I actually kind of got paranormal activity vibes to where there's a little something and then we wait a little while and then a little more something. And then, you know, and it kind of builds, 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 and then, you know, pie in the face at the end. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's also a thing, you know, going back to the whole Stephen King thing and, and what he actually does well. And there there are plenty of things that you can you can critique Stephen King as far as being a storyteller. And he's not you know, he's he's one of my favorite writers, but he's certainly not perfect. And, you know, he, his you know, he certainly has flaws in his, in his storytelling. But one thing he does manage to get right an awful lot is 
Uh, he kind of understands the mechanism by which you can scare people, and that is through familiarity. If you uh, if you if you're allowed to become familiar with the characters and the setting and the people that you're following through the story, then you become invested in what happens to them. And then when things start to go south, you become afraid for them because you feel a connection, whether it's a connection because you like them or dislike them, it's still a connection and you become invested in, in, you know, their, their activity and the choices that they make and the things that uh, they do and the things that are done to them as we find out, you know, throughout the story. So it's very important where if you're going to do a kind a, a story that's like this, that has all of these different townspeople and it's all of this close knit community, but it's a lot of different people that, you know, uh, have different points of view and things. It's it's important that you really get to know them before you really start, you know, screwing with the with the chess pieces. You really got to familiarize yourself with them. Otherwise, it's not. It's, it doesn't. It's it's not as effective as horror. Um, then you're just you know uh, you're just uh, kind of trading on the uh, you know the blood and the gore and the jump scares instead of a real like sense of suspense about why you should care about what happens to all these people. As <laughs> it's a bit of connected tissue and then we'll jump into episode two. It's funny you mentioned having to keep track of the characters because for a while there in the show, I kept forgetting who was who and sometimes I thought they were the same guy. The father of the gal in the wheelchair and Riley's dad, I swear to God, under the heading of all white people look alike, I'm like, who the hell? Wait, which character is this? It's a lot of it's a lot of mustache dads in this, uh, in, in, yeah. in this island. Yeah. Not only not only that, this is one of my this is a criticism I have of this particular show because all the actors here are uh, aged up with makeup, like they're mm -hmm. all because they're all going to start becoming younger, and rather than spend the money to digitally de-age older actors, they took more you know younger to middle-aged actors and slapped a bunch of old person makeup on them i don't know why this show and so many others like it can't get better old man makeup than eric bischoff had when he broke up <laughs> billy and chuck's commitment ceremony on smackdown like uh, 10 years ago are you saying the makeup people in hollywood are ass men sure i thought the makeup was good the I makeup, really did. I, Henry Thomas's old man makeup was good. Um, yeah, I, I, there's individual cases that I agree with that, like the doctor's mom, fine. the doctor's the doc mom, the transition between right before she dies and as she is as the eldest lady is amazing. Um, I'm gonna not 100% agree with you like that. I took one look at her, I'm like, that's a 25 year old yeah. woman in old, in old <laughs> yeah. makeup. See, I, I she fooled that, me. And then I, I had to look it up. I actually went on IMDb and I'm like, oh, yeah, she was born in like 1990. Okay. Yeah, she's younger than I am. I, fi I, fi I figured. Yeah, I figured it was something. I figured it was something Perfect. like that. Yeah, th there's a few of them that work better than others. Um, the <sighs> Riley's mom doesn't quite work for me. Like, because they have like stages for this, mm -hmm. like when we first meet her, she's okay. The middle stages, and then when she are a little bit rough, and then when she fully goes young again, then it's fine because that's just her. But uh, yeah, there's some that work. I mean, when we see eventually we're going to, I mean, spoiler for this, we're going to see uh, the Monsignor and his old man makeup. And uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. No. Was that actually. Um, uh, I'm 90% um, sure. 
because I can't find anything that says that was uh, a Hamish Linklater in old man makeup. I genuinely could not find anything to say that. So I thought it was a different actor entirely. They'd have to give. So they'd I. have to give him credit. Like if there's nobody, if there's no credit as old version of this character, it is just him in makeup. Well, right. here I'll IMDb it then. I feel free. I might be wrong yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, up to Psalm, Psalm 69, 69, 69. Townsfolk cannot determine a cause of death for the cats found along the beach. Bev, the best character, covers the church perimeter with 1080, hoping to fend off potential predators. Father Paul learns that Lisa Scarborough, uh, the Crockett's mayor's daughter, who uses a wheelchair, was paralyzed after being accidentally shot by the town drunk Joe Collie. Um, Slight, slightly less stereotypical than the villain in Black Widow, but we'll talk about it. During the <laughs> island's annual Ash Wednesday Potluck Festival, Joe's dog suddenly dies after eating food off the ground. Joe suspects Bev, whom he personally despises for extracting church donations from the townsfolk after convincing them to accept a settlement with the oil company that poisoned the Bay's waters, knowing it would benefit the church. Erin witnesses a mysterious creature stalking through her property. Riley attends a one-on-one AA meeting with Father Paul, where he expresses his contempt for the doctrine of uh, theodicy, owing to his guilt over the fatal car accident. During Mass that Sunday, Father Paul insists that Lisa rise from her wheelchair to accept the Eucharist. To everyone's shock, <gasps> Lisa stands and walks. All right, Robert, you can kick things off here. What do you got for me? Here's where we get to one of Flanagan's, we'll call it his quirks of his writing. Mark, you and I are going to have a disagreement about this, and I want to make sure that we understand each other before we do. Okay. Most of what Mike Flanagan writes when he writes his own material is not dialogue. He writes characters that monologue at each other. Yeah. And I'm... and. So we that and that's a big problem for me frequently when I watch these things. Okay, let me allow me to quick rebut and then continue your point. Right. I think that is where we're we're having a chasm in how we viewed this show. I I like stylistically monologuing at one another, especially if the content of the monologue is engaging. This was a this was a meditation on uh, faith. This was a meditation on a number, any number of things, aging, um, the you know the politics of religion. I liked. I think my favorite scenes in this. When we talked about this online and got into a disagreement, I know that's shocking to everyone watching this. <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, the thing that I was drawing specific attention to were the interactions between Flanagan and Riley. I enjoyed their give and take but I like a good debate and that's what a lot of it was. I concede that it might not work for you and I will let you explain why, but that's where I was coming from is you have two characters and sort of going Lincoln Douglas at one another. And I, and so it's, it's kind of like what I said about Falcon and winter soldier. I like what they're talking about. I like the theme and I like how they're delivering the monologue. So I was engaged. My, I think my issue with this is I'm, I'm with you that most of the time when Riley and Father Paul are doing this, it works. Mm -hmm. They both have very specific points of view. They're engaging with each other. It's a little bit long-winded, but that's also somewhat the nature of what they're doing. Like, th these aren't these two men supposed to... This is not just them having a conversation. This is couched in an AA meeting. 
Right. And granted, it's just between the two of them, but there's there's etiquette to this, to how you conduct yourself. Which is another and, element to this. We all know I have a background in substance abuse treatment, and so this was speaking in a lot of ways directly to me and the things that I professionally enjoy. Yeah, and, and those two in particular, I'm okay with. Like mm-hmm. I, I, it's more that this is a lot of his writing style throughout the entire show. I haven't seen his the other two things he's done for Netflix yet, so I don't know how much of it permeates that, but given some of the responses I've seen to this in particular, a sequence in the last episode, and I'll talk Mm -hmm. about it when we get there. It seems like this is something he's a bit notable for now. Again, that's not always a negative. It can be a feature, not a bug, but it is something that you have that is very much different from the majority of how humans speak to one another. Sure. This was not real speak. This, this was not the wire. Mark it down on your bingo cards, everybody. This was this was dramatized in many ways. It, it is, yes, sev- severely. And again, sometimes this works. Sometimes it doesn't quite as much. And you okay. get introduced to it here. I mean, if if you want an example of one that doesn't work, we'll get to the episode in particular, I think. But when uh, it's in Lamentations, when Aaron and Riley are talking on the couch, mm-hmm. like, okay. The what do you think happens when you die speech? Like, okay, each of you could have done this in half the lines. And we could have been, (laughs) and things could have been, we could actually progress this a little bit quicker. But again, we can get to that specifically in time. It's just a feature of Flanagan's writing, I think. And when he adapts other people's material, it's not nearly as prominent. Like, you don't have quite the same problem with uh, Dr. Sleep. You do a little, but it's. I think it's part of why he's drawn to King's writing because King doesn't go this far with it. But he's on occasion, he's been no uh, on occasion. On occasion, I mean, I do have a copy of The Stand within arm's reach, so you know. Two shelves back here. <laughs> I can go. I can go grab it if you want. It's signed by Bernie Wrightson. Oh, that's I'm, nice. That's a that's a humble brag. I'm I'm gonna stop now. <laughs> oh, I, I'm jealous. That's a nice signature to get on that. Uh, it's all as with as with some of the other things that I said about this. We're this is about this is not about trying to shake or uh, subvert the tropes that go into a lot of these vamp, uh, vampire stories. If you're not doing a gore fest with your vampire story, you do something like this. You do corruption. Mm-hmm. So the priest slowly feeding everyone the blood of the vampire. The only question we have at this point is, are is Father Paul? a nefarious actor or a horribly misguided one? Because we don't have that particular answer just yet. That's that's the only real question here, because uh, you know, feeding people vampire blood against their knowledge, well, we're, we're <laughs> not a good thing. So the, again, are you evil? Hurting the ethics just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. Um, the decision to, again, I mentioned Bev Keen as an effective hate sink. I don't know why the I don't know why Mike Flanagan decided to that he had to a Rocky the dog, but how dare you? Not a, oh. a reference only Benjamin might get. <laughs> I'm actually like I I don't I don't want to derail the whole thing, but like I I watching the first two episodes kind of gave did me you pause. Say, did you say you were going to derail the whole thing? Are you going to get into Captain America Shield? Oh dear God, not again. <laughs> <laughs> that was for Alexis. Mark it on your bingo cards, everybody. Please continue, Ben. 
<laughs> well done. I came prepared. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'll I'll say this real quick, and Robert, if you want to get back to what you're saying, I I. I these first two episodes gave me pause as to whether or not, like, I wanted to really like start telling people about this and whether I wanted to start recommending this to people. I was going to kill a dog in the second episode. Yeah, I wasn't. I, I, I wasn't expecting quite as much animal harm in like the first two episodes. Like, like, yeah. In all, in all seriousness, I was like, oh, whoa, like, like Braveheart. We lost. A, they, we lost a lot of good horses that day. Yeah, they they kind of go there, and you know, eat, and, as somebody myself that I, you know, I love animals, and I don't like seeing animal harm and i'm like you know and it's one of those things where like you know uh horror fans that are also animal lovers will will understand like you can on screen you can murder a thousand people in the most horrible ways but don't don't ever, you dare ever, go ever near. hurt a dog yeah yeah don't hurt a do the dog's gotta live oh, to God. the end it's like it's like don't. the babadook controversy it's <laughs> like everyone talked about how great it was it's like yeah but the dog. It's like, no, no one can handle that. The dog yeah. and children. And boy, are we going to talk about that tomorrow night. But yeah, I, I get your point. But that, you know, that 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 surprised me a little. I didn't expect that they were going to go there. First of all, that they were going to go there at all. But then that they were going to go there so early in, in the series where you've got a beach full of dead cats. Like, you know, that put me off of recommending the show to a couple of people that I know <laughs> would not have wanted to see that, you know? Um, I think the last thing I want to touch, this might be a weird thing, but the, uh, the, the dead cats and dogs, the sheriff. Mm. Yes. Is it just to me? Like, I've seen him and do and other things where he doesn't have the full beard with a full beard. He looks like, John Krasinski with a full beard, just with a deep tan. Like it's a little bit free off-putting to me to watch. Oh, oh, crap. I'm not going to be of... able to unsee that. <laughs> I been in a couple of different series. He was in uh, Blind Manor, uh, the previous okay. Flanagan yeah, he... series. Uh, he was a primary or a main character on iZombie for the entire series. Yeah, yeah, he also know he's a British actor, and mm -hmm. I think this was his first time. It's at least the first time I've ever seen him where he. Uh, had an american accent and i think he sounded I great I, I forgot he was in blind manner so there i mean there you go mm -hmm. yeah, so something called like, happy anniversary and he was in two episodes of supergirl and the aforementioned i zombie he's the voice of harley quinn sorry sorry he's the voice of dr crane special scarecrow and harley quinn and i guess he was on whatever iteration of the rocketeer show on disney uh he was a voice actor in three episodes yeah i i don't know why but the first couple of times i saw him like this is facial structure and then he doesn't look like john krasinski normally but when they've both got the full beard i, I just i looked at him and went i saw a little bit like what are you doing here like you look like him as, <laughs> in, as jack ryan like like that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a good looking actor he's very good looking i follow him on instagram Okay, right, keep it going alexis what'd you think of episode two I think we need to go ahead and talk about Hamish Linklater as Father Paul because this episode alone, this is the episode you, before you realize exactly what's going on, you, before you know what his his motivations are, before you know what he's doing there. Um, I've mentioned this before, I left my family's church a long time ago. You know, I am not religious, but listening to his sermons in this series and the way especially the scene in the second episode where they're at the potluck thing and he's talking to various people he is so i don't even know if charismatic is the word i want to use but the way he talks and the way he presents himself to people 
this is a guy who you want to listen to. This is somebody who you would want to talk to. When We're they not start there doing- yet, but his army of God uh, speech that he gives in an episode Holy. or two is one of the yeah. high points of this series. It is phenomenal. Absolutely. Just the, the bit with him and Riley having their uh, first AA meeting and just how friendly it is going back and forth. You know, they're just like huh, one person, you know, so how do we start this? And they're just kind of laughing. And I, I remember telling Andre, I said, this is this is so perfect because this is someone you want as a priest. This is someone who you would trust when you are having, you know, issues with your faith, somebody who you would trust to guide you. They cast this guy was cast so well. And it kills me because I haven't seen him in many things, but the only thing I recognize specifically when I look through his IMDb page was the new adventures of old Christine, which my (laughs) mother had on when I lived with my parents. I like to add, I did not watch that show out of my own volition. Can I ask you a question? Have you seen the newsroom? Mm -mm. Okay. Do you, are you okay with like political shows, like news shows that, you know, like fictional news shows, you know, stuff that deals in that genre? Yes, if I'm in the right mood. Uh, I hate to say that, it, but the way the political... Question. Hang on, better question. How do you feel about Aaron Sorkin? That's a very important Good question. <laughs> okay, if you hey, like Aaron Sorkin, watch show. The Newsroom, because he's amazing on The Newsroom. If you hate Aaron Sorkin, then never mind, and please continue. No, I like Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. But, like I said, just... It was amazing how, like I said, I don't know if charis is there a word other than charismatic? Because it's not, I don't think of it as charismatic. He magnetic. Doesn't, magnetic. Very good. Yes. He is yeah. so magnetic. And I love how well he presents himself. You know, just you want to believe him. You want to listen to what he has to say. You want to continue listening to him talk. Just, oh my God, he was so great in this. Yep. He, uh, he gives good uh, promo. All right. <laughs> so episode three, Proverbs, uh, book three rather. Crockett Island begins experiencing a religious revival after Lisa's sudden recovery, which the residents believe was a miracle. Lisa visits Joe, who witnesses her recovery for the first time and tearfully expresses the years of hatred she has harbored towards him for causing her life ruinous injury only to ultimately forgive him. A moved Joe decides to attend an AA session with Riley and Father Paul. Sheriff Hassan, whose Muslim faith puts him against the town's mostly Christian population, like you do, learns that his son Ali is studying the Bible. Later, he makes an unsuccessful attempt to get Bev to stop. This is one of my favorite scenes on the entire show. Uh, Later, he makes an unsuccessful attempt to get Bev to stop handing out Bibles to public school children. At a town meeting, Father Paul collapses in front of Bev. And the Scarboroughs and dies, coughing up blood only to suddenly spring back to life. In a flashback taking place the night before his sermon on the island, Paul sits in the confession booth. He reveals the true story of Monsignor Pruitt. Near Jerusalem, Pruitt was caught in a sandstorm and discovered an ancient ruin where he was attacked by a winged, blood-sucking humanoid creature, which Pruitt asserts is an angel. It's a funny-looking angel, pal. This that fed him its lifeblood. Pruitt awoke the next morning to discover he had regained his youth. Revealing Father Paul's true identity as a revitalized Monsignor Pruitt. So two things um, before I uh, go to you, Alexis. Um, Two things about this episode. One, the conversation in the school about handing out the Bibles was so funny to me um, because it rings rings so true. I couldn't couldn't laugh. Like, I've I've been to that meeting. Yeah. (laughs) Hassan's whole thing is... 
it's not legal for you to yeah. hand out yeah. Bibles at the school. I'm not making a judgment about the religion. If you did it with the Quran, it's equally as illegal. If you hand out any religious tome, you just, just can't do it. This is not a judgment of the religion. And Bev goes, yes, but isn't it awfully nice to have a Jesus? And, you know, and she... <laughs> I thought you were about to start into a Monty Python song there for a second. Um, nope, doing the thing. Uh, so, <laughs> she, uh, so she's like, you know, it, but isn't it awfully nice to have religion? And he's like, that's not the point. And she says, oh, but it is. And let me access to personality disordered way tell you why and everyone's like we're with you bev and there's Hassan going how many assholes we got on this ship so uh, it's like, <laughs> it is a great scene everyone had to put their hands up and he then gets to do that i'm surrounded by assholes by yeah. assholes exactly <laughs> i utter frustration robert i know um in in your life course and, and i'm not asking you for the quick biography of robert winfrey just give me a, a firm nod it's a short uh, look. Um, but just the, <laughs> to, to, to know that you have the right answers and yet nobody will listen to you because they have succumbed to this person's flowery, charismatic bullshit and how frustrating that is to know everything's on fire around you, yet nobody will see, nobody will accept the water because the water has been told it has been told to be tainted. Yep. <laughs> so I love that scene for that because it was a very human, very true scene. Um, the other thing, I'll go to you, Alexis, because um, I, I need to go back and look over some notes here. But go ahead and tell me what you thought of uh, episode three. Yeah, starting with where you left off here, like I said, I have not hated a character so much in a long time. I think the last character I hated like this was either Joffrey from Game of Thrones or Dolores Umbridge from the fifth Harry Potter book. Mm -hmm. There's some this... overlap. Just oh, without question. <laughs> there is some overlap. There is a talent to writing a truly despicable, unredeemable villain. And Flanagan nails it yeah. with Bev. She is so horrible. And it, it, the, the problem is that when a lot of writers try to write a really good villain and they try to make them this this spiteful, it comes off as comedic. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you almost get like you're you're rolling your eyes. You go, oh god, this is so over the top. It's hilarious. You never get that with Bev. You hate her and you it hate everything she it, does it is understated in a very weird way where it doesn't feel understated but you're right and maybe understated is not the right word more reserved and, and composed it is a reserved and composed evil that she emits and it's the kind that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis especially oh, if yeah. you have a religious community around you um yeah. like i said just i mean we all know that she fed the dog poison in the right. second episode and I hate to say it, it almost made me laugh looking back on the first episode that she was the only one I think that dog barked at. <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, those of us who own dogs, we know this. Dogs do sense evil. The animals know. The animals, the animals know. know. <laughs> I have seen dogs bark at someone and they don't bark at other people. I'm like, there's a reason my dog's barking at you, okay? It's like, um, sometimes, sometimes it's the bacon in your pocket. More often than not, it's the hole in your soul. <laughs> shit that's a good line um, and, 
but yeah, that speech that she gives uh, about, you know, it's like, oh, you think I fed the dog the poison? Well, let's take a look at how many people else have access to the poison. Just, oh my God, do not get this woman on a stand in a in a trial, okay? She's going to make the lawyer's head explode. So two things. One, if they do a third Maleficent movie, get this woman to coach Angelina Jolie or just direct Angelina Jolie because that's what I want to see as Maleficent. Two, yeah. Robert, Joe, we need to talk about this because I am a little confused and maybe I missed something. It's entirely possible. Like There were times I wasn't paying very close attention um, or maybe Shock. just wasn't in there. But I feel like for the amount of acrimony, I mean, I understand he shot the girl by accident, but by accident, by accident. But she comes in there with just shit tons of acrimony towards this guy and he comes completely apart in the scene and I'm going... Did I miss something? Because, like, did they ever explain why he shot her or what he mistook her for or what kind of... Okay, he was drinking. Um, was there anything more to it? Was he, like, a benign racist? What was going nope. on with this guy? No. Because cause here's the thing. For the amount of drama and acrimony in the, in the, the, uh, the delivery of that monologue that she gives, I thought was a bit out of step with what's going on with what we've seen of Joe up to this point, go ahead, Ben. You look like you got something to say. Um, I'll Our just go day. by. I'll just go by what I what I caught. And I'm sorry if I cut Robert off. No, no, uh, yeah, yeah, you're fine. Please. Um, yeah, it seems like it was hinted because that's something that's something that I noticed too, and I I kind of was you know questioning whether or not you know the uh, the amount of anger was was warranted or not. But um, they also kind of hint, and, and this is this is the thing about the show, it hints at a lot of things without outright saying it, which, which I can appreciate. You know, they don't spell everything out. They're just kind of left, you know, leave the characters to fill in some of the blanks, but not all, all of them. And it seems like it was implied that, like, you know, Joe's obviously got a drinking problem and everybody knows about it and it's led him to do stupid things in the past. And he frequently ends up, you know, arrested and thrown in the drunk tank. And it's, you know, it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. And it seems like it was implied that, like, you know, this went on for a very, very long time in the past. And he, you know, he seemed to dodge any serious consequences or anything that would cause him to think twice about his actions. Um until this happened mm -hmm. and there seems to be that seems to be where the acrimony was is coming from is that you know he he did this uh you know he was reckless and he may have been you know this may not have been the first time that he was you know shooting off guns randomly while he was while he was you know shit faced drunk uh it just so happened that this time that he did it it, it paralyzed the little girl and then that that was the last straw for like the whole town mm-hmm that's what it seemed like to me because they they hint like you know, uh, you know he you know it wasn't the first time that he's been you know that he's been it's not so many words but they I definitely remember them alluding to the fact that it's not the first time that he got drunk and started firing guns yeah. you know recklessly. I can so, appreciate subtlety in a screenplay. I felt that that needed to be set up just a little bit more. I'm not asking for a maybe. full blown flashback. I would have. I think I just needed to see maybe more of Joe before she goes off on him or maybe a little bit more of her before we're supposed to it's assumed you're supposed to identify her because of the circumstances which is fine these are easily identified uh relatable circumstances robert but i feel like in a drama i need just a little bit more uh 
I don't fully disagree with you. I would counter a little bit with the following. You've worked you work in the mental health field. People who have something irrevocably taken from them. Mm -hmm. You know, you can either drown in your own grief and anger or you can find a way to live with it mm -hmm. and do your best to press on irrespective. This particular sequence posits something a little bit different. What if you got it back? Mm -hmm. And the conclusion that is drawn here, whether you agree with it or not, this is the, uh, the show's perspective. She decides that uh, like what you get is not somewhat, it would almost be too much of a cliche if she's the mopey cripple. Mm -hmm. So we don't see her that way because she is, this has happened long enough in the past that she's learned, she has processed, she has learned to continue, but also not far enough in the past that, you know, she's forgotten what it's like to walk. Mm -hmm. There's only, there's only a bit of muscular atrophy that's going on. Uh, so when she gets her ability to walk back, you all of a sudden, you know, how long was she in? I don't think they say specifically how long she was in the chair, but I imagine at least a couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, suddenly you've lost two years. Like and and not in a and not in a life changing, but life has to progress under this new paradigm. But now, like, I retroactively resent you more because of what you took from me that I now have back. It's a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, if I can interrupt, I think it may have happened more recent than that. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. But it's established in the second episode that uh, Paul, Father Paul, who we now know is Monsignor Pruitt, didn't know uh, what happened to her. Uh, because she tells him and he acts all surprised. So either he was acting really, really good, which he could have been. Or this happened between when Monsignor Pruitt went to Jerusalem and when Father Paul came to the island. So I, it I, may have been more recent than that. Uh, my assumption, my immediate assumption would be this happened sometime after Riley went to jail. But uh, time in a four year period. Yeah, sometime mm -hmm. in that period. Be just because, you know, she would. If that girl processed in less than a year to then become as functional as she was, like that's superhuman. Like I, I don't, I don't care who you are. That level of, that level of dealing with physical trauma and emotional trauma is would be superhuman. It takes a lot. It takes time to get to that level of acceptance about your new about your new circumstances. For what it's worth, I'm also agreeing with Benjamin on this that it's clear that joe never actually got any kind of oh, reprimand yeah. i mean i'm just gonna say it lisa's father the town mayor has got to be the biggest wet blanket in this entire freaking show and the minute they, he established himself as mayor i'm like and you do what yeah they um because when riley's coming back through they talk a bit about when he's being reintroduced they talk a little bit about what happened and you know his response might even have been before he went away then because he that is who he was talking with gave him this response but they called it a hunting accident what happened to her and the kind of tongue-in-cheek response from the other people then was 
yeah, all that big game out here on the island, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, it, I mean, that's also kind of what... There's a nice little not callback to that as that poor, lovely dog is dying. When whoever's... I forget who was talking with him, at the, who came up and talked with him, and said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry... You know, maybe it was just an accident and he looks up and goes, this was no accident. And then he sidelines his eyesight moves over to Lisa and you see his soul die a little bit. Like that's the uh... thing. Like I think as well, I, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this and we're going to move on. Um, I feel like as an audience, you were supposed to hundred percent side with Lisa and you are hundred percent supposed to condemn Joe, but Joe's, the show doesn't do the best job then of presenting him as entirely deplorable. He's in many ways sympathetic. I, and I don't know if the perspective of the show is, well, drunkenness is a, is a sinful and bad thing and should be punished. I mean, you know, not, not to get off on a, a tangent here. I swear to God, I'm not going to. But, it, you know, a, a substance abuse is a disease. Well, Go ahead, Ben. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you about that. I, I tended to look at it as like... Um, you weren't entirely like, I think it's by design that you're kind of meant to sympathize at least a little bit with, with Joe. Um, and at the same time, also, you know, at the same time, sympathize with, um, with Lisa yeah. with, um, and kind of make you conflicted as an audience. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, her reaction is understandable, but it can also be considered extreme, but it's still understandable, yeah. but sure. it's extreme. And you're kind of going back and forth with that. And, I mean, because I have, I, I trust me, I don't have to relate everything back to Spider Man. I really don't. I really don't. Oh my God. I don't have to. Are, are you looking but for I a spot to, on the bingo card? There's spots available. Have, yeah. <laughs> you know, if nothing else, we needed a reason to, to get Joe to uh, start going to the church and get closer to Father yeah. Paul. And Absolutely. I do like that they give him a very. He's a tragic villain. He is. Again, there's villains well, who are irredeemable and there are villains who are tragic. And I think of Joe as a tragic villain. Well, this is the, the this is the Spider-Man reference that I want to throw out really quickly. And trust me, it'll it it, it ties in, uh, sort of. But there there's one particular story that I that I uh, after like, you know, one of the many, many Spider-Man versus Green Goblin battles, you know, there's the there's always a battle of fists and a battle of wits between between those two characters. And there's one, you know, and, and there's a, a point where, you know, Spider-Man steadfastly like refuses to kill him to kill the Green Goblin, despite everything that he's done. And he tells him he's like, no matter what you do. Uh, you can't break my resolve to not become a murderer like you. And I can walk away right now, which I'm about to do. And he does in, in this particular story. And he looks back and he says, you just being you, that's life without parole. And he leaves. And that's kind of what I felt for, you know, Lisa was doing was basically, you know, confronting Joe and saying, I can forgive you. I can, you know, I can move on with my life. I can make sure that you know that uh, you, you know, you will no longer weigh on my life. All, all I need to know is that you are living in your own private hell and I can walk away satisfied with that because there's nothing I can do to you that's worse than what you've already done to yourself. That's how, that's how I looked at it, at what she was trying to get at in that scene 
I think you're spot on with that. Um, episode four, Lamentations. Uh, during Erin's routine pregnancy checkup, Crockett Island resident Dr. Sarah Gunning discovers that Erin's fetus has mysteriously disappeared from her uterus and concludes that she has miscarried. Distraught, Erin spends a day with Riley, grieving her unborn child and discussing their respective childhoods and views on the afterlife. The following morning, Erin goes to the mainland to seek a second opinion, where Dr. questions whether or not Erin was ever really pregnant at all. Meanwhile, Father Paul begins to experience mysterious vampiric symptoms, including burning in sunlight like you do, as Bev deduces his true identity. Unable to perform his duties in broad daylight, Father Paul performs an in-home evening Eucharist with Dr. Gunning's elderly mother, Mildred, who recognizes Paul as Monsignor Pruitt. Later in the rectory, Father Paul is visited by Joe, who witnesses Paul, uh, who witnesses Paul drinking the angel's blood, which he has bottled and has been diluting with communion wine. Father Paul hugs Joe tightly, and Joe falls and hits his head on the floor, causing him to bleed profusely. Paul drinks Joe's blood. Mayor Scarborough and, and local handyman Sturge discover Joe's corpse and a weary Father Paul the following morning. Bev elects to cover up the murder, believing Father Paul to be justified in his actions and his resurrection to be an omen of the second coming of Christ. Paul, uh, Father Paul and Riley meet that evening for AA, and Paul explains to Riley that Joe is absent, visiting his sister on the mainland. However, Riley knows this to be untrue, as Joe has confided to him that his sister had died months prior. Riley returns to the rec center that night to confront Father Paul, only to be attacked by the angel, who is seen shedding its blood into a decanter. All right. Go ahead and kick us off. Um, ben, what would you think of this episode? What do you want to talk about? Um, I put the, like, you know, the initial shock value of this, of how this episode ended, I, you know, I'll, I'll field any rebuttals to this, but like, I, I, I looked at it as this was like, you know, the first season of Game of Thrones uh, in terms of the guy who you were sure was the main character of the yeah. show <laughs> gets off halfway through the show. And I was like, okay, well played. <laughs> I did not see that coming. I thought if anybody if anybody in the series had plot armor, it was going to be Riley. And um, I was happy to be wrong about that. Uh, Let me interject here. So um, I, I, as I'm watching this thing and I'm wondering to myself, what in the hell did Ben see in the show that he thought was so scary uh, up to this point? And I had the very same reaction to the vampire screeching you know, into the camera and attacking Riley as I did the first time I watched Paranormal Activity and dude yeah. comes flying up the stairs into the camera to like this whole movie. I'm gonna let you get back to your point in just a sec, Ben. But the whole movie, I'm just like, uh-huh, and then and what? And there's nothing in this movie that ah! you know, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and I had the same thing here. I'm like, uh-huh, and alcoholism, and then we have a thing, and this is going on, and ah! you know, and then the episode ends. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, well done. You got me. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Um, hold on. The thing dropped out. Um, yeah, I um, <laughs> definitely didn't see that coming. Um, we we also start seeing. Um, I actually think it's a. Uh, uh, the show does a pretty good job of 
taking, you know, what is obviously, you know, a lot of the tropes of vampirism. And I don't think this is the first time this has ever been done, but like tying them into sort of events and, and, and passages in the Bible and, you know, twisting them just enough so that they kind of sort of fit with all of these passages. Uh, enough for somebody fanatical enough as, as say Bev to sort of justify everything that's happening. Um, also just as an aside, like, you know, we were talking about Bev earlier. I, I, my, my one personal thing about that is, um, I was throughout this entire series. I, I, I went back and forth trying to decide for myself is Bev too over the top of a villain. Is she too, you know, uh, is she too cartoonishly super villainish? And about halfway through the show, probably right about the point where like they're going, you know, back and forth about handing out Bibles, or there's, you know, some there's some other things that she goes into. And I kind of touched, I, I kind of came to the conclusion she's actually not cartoonish enough to be, you know, to, <laughs> compared to some people that I've seen. She's not villainous enough uh compared to some people that I've seen in real life. Mm. Um because my thing, my thing immediately went to anybody who is that, you know, fanatically religious and that fanatic, you know, fanatically, uh, you know, pro-Catholic and anti-everything, you know, not Catholic and uh, sort of, you know, has the sort of uh, venomous, you know, animosity that she has towards, uh, towards the sheriff who's Muslim, probably wouldn't have a whole lot of love for an interracial marriage either so that that was one thing that jumped out at me i'm like she could have been worse she sure. you know she actually could have been a lot worse um that's just an, that that's an aside um i like uh i like your kind of left you know uh they do a weird thing. They do a, not a weird thing. They do an interesting thing with um, Father Paul, you know, Monsignor Pruitt, um, where it sort of echoes what uh, you know what Riley and what Joe are kind of going through with their own, you know, recon reconciling their own addictions. And meanwhile, you've got Father Paul, who's uh, who's for all intents and purposes going through his own like kind of withdrawal. The uh, vampire angel whatever you want to call him uh has kind of made himself scarce he's running out of blood he's going through you know he's he's going through some kind of withdrawal his body is sort of violently turning against him and it man you know it's kind of manifesting itself as sort of you know this this helpless you know this this helpless hopeless you know feeling of hopelessness uh that you would see in somebody who is you know kind of you know detoxing kind of uh, when he's going. when he's just pacing and reciting that little um like prayer like i've seen i've seen people do that yeah like not even with, like it, it's oh boy do i really need something right now and i'm just gonna all i can do is put my head down and pace the energy away and pray i'll, I'll say not only have i seen you know people do that that are uh going through uh varying stages of addiction or, or, or addiction withdrawal or addiction recovery i've seen people do that with uh you know people struggling with mental health issues and people struggling with various uh stages of uh, act, you know, becoming acclimated to medication, becoming, you know, uh, coming down from lack of medication, things like that. Like it brings to mind like all kinds of different things. Um, the show 
does an interest does a lot of interesting things like that where it you know it it, it gives you this fantastical sort of scenario but it relates those things to the audience in ways that are you know much more uh much more relatable and that's redundant but uh relates that to the audience in ways that they may that some people are more familiar with um the other thing is is i i actually really like the characterization and, and sort of the way that this the show handles vampirism um there's two ways that most play most uh, vampire stories handle vampirism. One way is straight up magic. Uh, you know, uh, vampires are harmed by sunlight because, uh, you know, uh, stakes through the heart kill vampires because, um, you know, crosses ward off vampires because. Um, and then you have, you know, shows that try to, you know, that try to get scientific with it, which, um, you know, I don't mind the mat. You know, I don't. I don't mind the stuff that's rooted in magic, but I also don't mind the stuff that's rooted in science. I think the Blade movies tried to do that to some extent too. I, mm-hmm. I think is- the gold, the gold standard for scientific vampirism, to the extent that it chooses to lean into it for two of the three books, would be the Strain. The series. Strain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. Then the go- third, then the third book comes along and things get weird. Well, be- well, because it's you find out that all the science that the that all the vampirism and the strain is rooted in is also you know is all rooted in you know uh so loki <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's that so um and we find this out a little bit more they go in, they start going into i don't remember exactly when the doctor like tests the blood and the blood just spontaneously combusts i think that's a little couple more it was an epi- the- yeah it's another episode or two right it's also yeah. one of my favorite scenes in the show by the and way they, and, and they start going through all of these she starts going through all of these scientific reasons why this might happen and it actually you know it's like um it's like presenting uh, a case through quantum, through like real life quantum physics, as to why Superman is able to fly around the Earth in <laughs> reverse time, which I have a theory for. Um, message me later if you want to hear it. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it, it, I like I like when you know when you have a story that is willing to go to that length to sort to at least give you something to give you something by which you can suspend the rest of your disbelief from. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have to say about this particular episode. Just like I said, just the fact that, you know, that if you weren't, I mean, it, it's hard to, for anybody to like stick with a show this dense for this long and not be hooked by the, you know, what is the, the fourth episode uh, that we're on? Mm-hmm. But if you weren't before, you were like, this is probably the point of no return where you were like, no, it's the end of this series. I have to bust. say, like, I was committed to finishing this because of what we're doing tonight, but it wasn't until he got attacked by the vampire where I was like, oh, okay, now, now we're cooking with gas. Uh, speaking of cooking with gas, um, I don't typically do notes for these shows, but if I did, you know what I would use, Robert? Uh, I... I could be a jerk and say what, Pad, but I know you're trying to team me up for Grammarly. <laughs> God damn it. Stay on script. You haven't given me a script. Grammarly. If I gave him a script, would I would use Grammarly. You should use Grammarly to write a script for these things, yes. 
Uh, Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. And Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to uh, getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Alexis, your thoughts on God and if you'd really like to meet her. Was that necessary? It absolutely was. Move this along, madam. <laughs> Don't know if I can really top what Ben was going on there, but I will say this. Tell me I'm not the only one who not only got freaked out about the vampire screeching at the camera, but the scene of Father Paul drinking Joe's blood out of the wound on his head while he was still alive and just twitching there. Oh, my God, that was unsettling and so freaky. Yeah. It was it was very yeah, graphic, was. and for a show that the the scares and the 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 any kind of gross graphic nature of things is extremely subtle. Those were two parts where you know if you're if you're in, really into horror, that was some good visual stuff. It probably wouldn't have had the same impact if it had just been like gore from from the word go. You know, yeah. If he like cut yeah. his head off, I was like drinking it like a coconut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put, you put the lime in the coconut and drink it like a vampire. Yes. Mark, if, if I ever want to really disturb you, remind me to introduce you to Crossed sometime. Is this going to be like the Babadook thing where I have to hear or, or, or demon bear no. baby cry or whatever this is, No, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Crossed is what Garth Ennis does when Garth Ennis wants to do extreme stuff. Got it. Oh, that cross. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Lexus, if not, I'll shoot over to Robert. Um... No, not on this episode. Like I said, I think you guys covered it all really nicely. This was a very shocking episode. Riley does get a really good speech here when he talks to, I'm, I'm sorry, was it to, to his mother or to Aaron when he discussed about how he caught Father Paul lying? I actually can't remember who he talks to about to his that. Mother his, mother. his mother that was his mother. abjectly yeah. re rejects. Um, not, she, it's, she's worse when Aaron confronts her later about his death. Right. But this is where mom starts to go off the deep end. Yeah, no, that was a really good speech he gave to her just because his parents are so very devoted to the church. And he knows that if he goes to her and says something's up with Father Paul, it's going to be in one ear and out the other. She's never going to listen. So he knows exactly how he has to frame this and tell her that he caught Father Paul in a lie. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen of it. Or worse, his mother's going to be like, you've been drinking again, haven't you? Or some shit like that. The show substitutes, you know, the vampirism and um, the uh, the supernatural for people's natural tendency to throw in with charismatic religious figures. So it gets somewhat, I think, diluted uh, the message of the movie. But it is an interesting thing that happens to the mom. And she's one of the characters that they focus on for this, where because of the revival that's happening on the island, because of what's going on with Father Pruitt, we're willing to accept a lot more nonsense and a lot more, you know, craziness um, in the in the face of logic than you would be normally. And again, that's something that happens very naturally in life. You didn't have to have a vampire show up for for those things to happen, Robert. Well, not only that, but you wind up in a position when it comes to this in particular. You just you literally days ago watched a girl that you knew was paralyzed get up and walk. Mm hmm. You know, th there's a. There's more talking I, about the point of view of the show, but go on. Well, that's kind of what get, that, that's kind of what muddies the waters a little bit here, though. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, if you're interested in stuff that's just about how charismatic religious figures can ruin people's lives, there's any number of other things you can watch. Peach Dragon. Come on, just ignore me. Please keep going. If you want an actually <laughs> decent one, uh, there was one. Oh, I forget the guy's name. I forget the lead actor's name, but there was a found footage style one uh, called The Sacrament that was basically a riff on Jonestown at least a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I, the important thing here when it comes to this is um, it, there's an interesting dynamic. I need to back this up a little bit. There's an interesting dynamic between Riley and Father Paul that we're going to get into more in the next episode. And it does inevitably sort of come down to where you fall on, where you land on the faith scale. And what Father Paul does with some of the stuff that he, I mean, everyone in the town at this point is younger. All of their aches and pains are fading. You know, the, the father's back that's been bad for years is no longer bad. And he's able to just kind of dance with his wife and have a good time. It, you, uh, it's again, the very obvious one is the girl who winds is, uh, name is Lisa Lisa like there's a degree here to which faith is no longer the object you have evidence well I mean and most faith is based on evidence anyway I don't want to get into the I don't want to get into a discussion about that but you have like something very 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 tangible here that defies other explanation I mean there's a bit in one of the previous episodes where the the sheriff is talking with his son about the nature of faith and the nature of God. And you know, his son's like, this girl I know and have known for <laughs> years, the nose paralyzed, got up and walked. You know, that's that's a miracle. And the father, for his own reasons, which are mostly understandable, kind of goes off on him a little bit. Like, she must have been misdiagnosed because I can't believe in God if God is this capricious. If God will save her, but not your mother. And it's an understandable and very, very human reaction. And I want to say that there's a line he says later about maybe it's when Aaron comes to t tell him or Gunnery comes to tell him about what's going on in the town. I, I don't remember quite where this takes place, but something this, about the speech about him leaving New York. So, yeah. And I, but I, and I want to say it's there where he also talks about, I don't understand how, what, what about God's plan requires the death of my wife in a horrendous way from cancer? Where, what, 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 what foresight does God have that this is a necessity? And it's, it's hard for him to wrap his head around that. And boy, was that relatable for me? Uh, I, looks like that's episode six. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's coming up, but uh, no, I've lost where I was. Sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, let me move on to my other, a couple of my other points about this one. Was it about Spider-Man? That's not uh, funny. <laughs> this is one of the first times when, uh, one of the few times we actually see someone get off the island and then come back. We follow Aaron for a bit. Um, I've already mentioned this. I think her, I thought her discussion with Riley about you know what happens when you die. It's a nice sequence in some respects, but boy does it drag. Uh, it, it I just don't think it needs to be as long as it is, and it, it's a bit of a flaw in the writing and the editing of said writing process that I, I think kind of rears its head here. Um, I love the end. Well, like, I mean, if you don't, if the ending here doesn't get you a little bit, then, you know, you're made of stronger stuff than I am. I like that they didn't go with the traditional jump scare. There's not a lot of music when the vampire attacks. It's just very, very sudden. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen it do that before. We, uh, it attacks somebody in a mostly abandoned house. Like it, We've seen this thing feed on occasion. Um, Say the scene where he attacks uh, the, the, the drug dealer. Yeah. Oh my god, that's that that scene was terrifying, but you don't see the vampire attacking. You just see a creature with those, those, those eyes. Okay, actually, I do got to ask a quick question. If anyone knows this, the glowing eyes effect that we see that all the vampires have, is that done by contacts or is that like a special CGI trick? Do you guys know how that was achieved? If I had, uh, to, if I had to guess, there's a couple of ways you can do that. As my camera is frozen, I will fix that in a second. Uh, we have Robert perpetually lost in thought now. <laughs> yeah, my my normal state of being. Uh, normally, it's uh, you can do that just by shining a light in somebody's eyes. Like the entire reflective process for a cat's eye is uh, it needs light to reflect off of. It's just kind of a, a natural thing like that. So I don't I don't know exactly. Uh, they could have CGI'd it. They did it with Blade Runner 40 years ago. So, yeah. I mean, it's possible to do it practically, but... Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm guessing, yeah, there's like an iridescent contact lens or something you can put in all those actors. But I'm sorry, yeah, the way you see that creature with those glowing eyes hidden in the just shadow when he attacks the drug dealer. And impossibly tall. It's great. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, again, by that point, you don't know it's a vampire. You're just like, what the yeah. hell? You know it's a vamp. You, you kind of know it's a vampire. Um, you kind of know, think... but you don't. Okay, again, it's like you know, you got a feeling it's a vampire-like creature, but I don't think until we actually saw the third episode, we actually knew it was a vampire. Vampire. Well, the idea there. of a blood-sucking creature, we've seen thousands of them in various books, movies, and TV shows. Yeah, and by the way, the foreshadowing is all there. Like this is this is one of the advantages to having watched this twice. Like I watched the the entire series for the second time yesterday and today. Um, all the foreshadowing is there uh, down to, I think, in the very first episode where Joe gets thrown in the drunk tank and they're making fun of him because he was, you know, going on the night before about, you know, something with wings chasing him. And they all thought that was just, you know, like, yep. like sweet, beautiful drunk talk. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that that comes up, uh, you know, that I will get to in a little while that um, this the show, if the show had a, if the show has a major flaw with its foreshadowing is that the foreshadowing may have actually been a little bit too subtle to the to the point where, like, if you blinked, you missed some of it. And if you go back and watch it again, it's like, oh, that was all there, which I can appreciate. But it's super quick. Um, uh and- I think the other thing that comes up uh, importantly in this episode is we do get Father Paul's, uh, we get his motivation, we get his point of view here, like really clearly for the first time. And him being kind of the tragic moron, like like the really good intent, like this guy is not here to be evil. He discovered something that he considers miraculous and is, I mean, it is miraculous. You don't go from being an 80-year-old dementia patient to the prime of physical health overnight in the deserts of of Israel after stumbling into an eight like of, this is more like of course this is miraculous there's not another even if you want to take a supernatural element out of it the odds alone turn this into a miraculous occurrence 
and he's trying to share this gift with the people that he cares about and it's very very easy to see and we're going to see very quickly how wrong that goes <laughs> but he's not acting out of malice he's not trying to subjugate the world he thinks he's discovered something divine and i am i almost assume that just the bit of his dementia ridden mind that went angel didn't actually get healed until he was too far pot committed to his plan to think for a second big scaly winged creature that can't go into the sun that like you can't possibly be this ignorant of, of tropes in this particular respect like you just this is not a world without dracula right i do like how he continuously cites that anytime an angel in the bible is encountered by a mortal they say and they were sore afraid because that is that is true so there's a running gag that the first line any angel gets before they have to come down and interact with people is fear not fear not be not afraid (laughs) i mean no bible ever says that angels look like cherubs or the feathered wings or italian renaissance i was gonna say isn't that an italian renaissance thing where uh, where the kingdom of of heaven got made to look like you know an an upper class you know white people party no 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 that that traces back further than that okay yeah but the renaissance the renaissance are playing off of a lot of the like medieval choices when it comes to how they chose how they represented heaven there was a very distinctive period where they drove the non-white people out of the christian religion and and made it all again look like an upper east side white house party so i just i just don't know what what specific time that 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 takes place in hey i want to just quick say this because you, you mentioned something and it triggered something in the back of my mind that the show's sort of point of view on aging it, there's an editorial comment being made with the seven episode series that basically says boy will we do anything sacrifice anything go a little crazy to stave off aging in in eventual death and and i find that interesting because it, it seems obvious, but for the show to take the time to discuss it in the manner that it does, I was like, huh. <laughs> like, it, it seems weird. It's like, I just want to remind people, we'll all go a little nuts if we can find the fountain of youth, and it'll cause utter destruction in our society if we do. And it's like, we know? Why do we need the reminder of that? But apparently we do, because it's resonating with enough people. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and... This is where I think a little, I, I kind of like the juxtaposition of the miscarriage. I'm going to call it a miscarriage for want of a better phrase that Aaron suffers versus finally, you know, kind of seeing what happened to Paul. Uh, it's, how do I say this? A lot of people, when it comes to death, talk a big game. And then when you're staring down the barrel of that reality, you know what what well, if, how do you feel that that? Hap- i was gonna say isn't that isn't that kind of bev's story by the end of this oh yeah like, like that and you know it's everyone's story by the end of it because of how this ends and we well, can talk not, about that in a bit yes and no there are people sta- standing solemnly on the beach ready to accept their fate and then there's bev who is a zealot who and that's kind of the point of her character i am with faith and then the, you know right when it matters the most she is utterly absent of the faith and then proceeds to dig into the ground like a gopher. Yeah. So, um, but say, got... wasn't that the John Carpenter vampires where they literally dug themselves into holes in the earth and that's Probably. where they slept? There's been the, a few... that, that one, that horrible one with James Woods. 
All right. Go ahead, Ben. No, there's, just, there's been a few like that that I can that, that I uh, to some extent or another. I think I've, even like this, even you know, Robert mentioned the strain. There's some allusions to that, where you know the vampires sleep in coffins, but their coffins covered, you know, filled with with soil uh, because it's you know it's uh, supposedly you know the natural That's state of. Existence. So that goes back to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula sent the crates full of earth wherever he yeah. went because he had to sleep in his native soil. Yeah. Episode five, or book five, Gospels. Uh, concerned over Riley's sudden disappearance, Aaron files a missing persons case with Sheriff Hassan, who hypothesizes that Riley may have relapsed or committed suicide. On the evening of Good Friday Mass, Father Paul delivers a sermon rife with militaristic rhetoric. Oh, this is so good. Urging the congregation to prepare for war as soldiers of God's army. The homily upsets Mildred Gunning, whose physical and mental state seems to be rapidly improving following Father Paul's visit. Later that night, Riley appears at Aaron's doorstep and asks her to go offshore on a boat with him. Aaron, while suspicious, agrees. Rowing far away from the island, Riley reveals to Aaron what happened to him. After being attacked by the angel, Riley rapidly recovered under the care of Father Pruitt, uh, Father Paul. Father Paul reveals his true identity to him and tells him that he believes the angel's blood is a gift from God and has been mixing it into the communion wine to heal the residents of Crockett Island. Riley leaves the rec center disgusted and leaves notes for his family and Monsignor Pruitt behind Paul seeing Aaron. A Riley tells Aaron he brought her on the boat to isolate himself and declares his love for her. As the sun rises, Riley combusts and quickly burns away to ash as Aaron screams in horror. Uh, the two things I want to talk about real quick, and then um, I'll pitch to you, Ben, is Father Pruitt's speech. You know, I, I've watched a lot of Sam Kinison. Hang on. And I've <laughs> I've listened to a lot of Clutch, and I have seen people. I've, I've, I've watched a lot of like Martin Luther King speeches. There's a cadence. There's a rhythm to how each of these people um tells their tale and preaches their gospel and i've never seen somebody just utterly bereft of patience do it like <laughs> just like i have i am here the rest of you are back here fucking catch up already <laughs> <laughs> let's go we got shit to do <laughs> and that is how that speech comes across and i love it for that reason i just it's so funny to me like he is sitting there and you know filled with righteous anger and not and 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 only because like he's impatient to get the movement started and to catch all of the penguins up with the march. It's like <laughs> let's go already. We got a raid on on the earth here from God's army. I have no time to waste. And and and, and Hamish uh, Linklater, you know he had. I've seen him in a bunch of different things, a lot of dramas, a lot of stuff. Probably you know people either didn't know who he was or or, or didn't watch. Because again, he's, he doesn't do like the pop art stuff. He does a lot of adult things, not porn adult, regular adult. And, but he's a hell of an actor. He's really fantastic. And I don't, it, it's funny. We always talk about like, oh, I don't see anyone else being Captain America or this person or that person. I don't see anyone else doing that role. He's so good in this. And this is like peak performance in this series. It's not getting any better than this for that particular actor and character. And I really, it is probably one of my favorite parts of this show and the part that I was paying the most attention to. The second thing, I love a nice visual contrast in film and television. And one of the prettiest and horrifying and conflicting moments in this entire series is Riley having 
uh, unburdened himself with truth to Aaron and ready to accept his fate, sees, I guess, like an angel or a vision. There's That's, something. There's hang, a, hang on, hang on. He sees the girl that he killed in that car wreck. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Moving on. It's just the first time he doesn't see her with glass shards wow. all over her face. Okay. A, a detail I missed. Thanks for filling me in. He sees the girl and he is ready to accept his fate. And it's just the solemn, sweet, serene moment interrupted by him catching fire from the sun's rays and burning to a crisp. And uh, Aaron screaming bloody and there's murder. No music. It's just Aaron's horrified, she, blood curdling in, scream. Into she the closing credits. <laughs> through all of the closing credits. If you want if you it's if you so don't good. if you don't do the next episode button, that entire credit that entire credit sequence, she is screaming and crying. There are masterful strokes in television drama that come few and far between. And I'm going to tell you there the active choice to do the transition of him accepting fate and ascending to presumably heaven and burning to a crisp and her blood-curdling shriek through the end of the credits. Bold choices, perfect, as you would say, yeah. Robert, chef's kiss. It was amazing. And I don't think there was a moment besides the speech I just mentioned, besides this moment here that truly hooked me into the show. Because what happens next it's the, the next two episodes are so absurd to me and so just everything falling apart and you know vince mcmahon holding his ear as you know frick flair announces he owns half the wwe kind of shit happening i'm like whatever <laughs> there's a lot of eye rolling that happens here for me so this is really the high point of the the series for me ben i i really loved all of the things that i just mentioned yeah i'll uh go through what, what you were talking about um first thing yeah with the uh the sermon um by uh you know father paul as far as they know um i think i i've said this on other shows that we've done before about you know particular people i think um i don't want to say because i can't exactly remember which ones but i've often said on, on a few things that we've done together like you know a particular show or movie or whatever this does not work without blank right this this episode and this series as a whole does not work without Thomas Linkletter in this role given this performance it does not work he brings something to this whole thing that I don't think anybody else would have in quite the same way it bugged the living shit out of me that I couldn't remember who where I had seen uh, this actor before when I saw this because I know he you know he's he's got a fairly distinctive enough uh, face that I know I had seen him something before and I had to go back and look a couple of times because I missed it when I went through IMDB and, it, and I was like where was it and it, it it turns out it was um it's an Amazon series from I think a year or two ago called um I think it's called tell me your secrets mm -hmm. and he plays uh he plays a convicted uh rapist who is kind of reformed and um, sort of coerced through, you know, you should watch the series. It's a pretty damn good. Series. It's dense and it's complicated as hell, but it's pretty good. And he's sort of coerced back into doing illegal things after he tries to, you know, get on the straight and narrow. And he doesn't necessarily, you know, embrace that right away, but he ends up embracing it harder than you know than you might expect he falls into a bad life that he thought he had left behind uh you know pretty solidly and if you see that performance 
this performance makes all kinds of sense as to how he's able to do what he's doing in this, uh, how he's able to be uh, so morally square, morally sure of himself throughout so much of this series. And then, you know, to immediately like to, you know, when it all hits the rails, you know, he, to, he can go into that area of moral confliction. Uh, it's, I, I can't say enough about that. I know, you know, Mike Flanagan has like his, his treasured featured players. He has his, his actors that he brings back over and over again. He's got Carla Gugino. He's got, thank God he's, you know, he's, he, he kind of revived Henry Thomas's career because it turns out Henry Thomas is a pretty, pretty damn good actor mm-hmm. himself. I'm so happy about that. E.T. was a long time ago, man. Like, <laughs> I'm Don't glad that. it makes me feel old. Yeah, I'm older than you, by uh, so there you go. Um, Et came out the year I was born, so um, yeah. I he had. I, I really hope he finds a place for Comsley Letter and whatever he does next, because like you know, this performance needs to be because needs to be a breakout performance. It needs to be something that leads to him just being in you know other things that are just as good, if not better. Absolutely. Um, so the, if he doesn't uh, get an Emmy nomination for this, I'm going to be shocked. Eh, we'll see. I don't. I, uh, the performance is good enough, but like you know, so is. You know, so is Paul Bettany's, but and I'm sure maybe I got some people dis- that would disagree with me on this on this uh, call. But anyway, um, the other thing is, yeah, the, um, the ending to this uh, where Riley sort of takes his final bow, um, kind of. I don't want to say I completely saw it coming uh, after at at a certain point. I, I was like. Oh, no, you knew it he was, was going to go, die. It, it was totally well, in the presentation. It, it was going to go two different ways. Either he was going to he was going to die or he was going to turn Aaron. Um, mm-hmm. It was going to go one way or the other. Um, you also get. I think this is the same scene. Like they go back and talk and and show the immediate uh, events of what happened after he got attacked. Right? Like oh, that side so of his neck healing in the yeah, bones. Oh, yeah, they're, oh they're, my they're god, gonna, you're fine, you're fine, crunch, everything's yeah. fine. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> oh my god, that was petting him horrible. Like, like his name was George, everything's going to be okay. Crap, I would have loved you squeamish people need to see more chiropractors. I would have. <laughs> I'm just saying, I would, I would have, I would have loved to be on the set the day that you know Mike Flanagan whips out his wallet, and just hands the Foley guy a wad of twenties, and is like, "Come back with a bunch of celery, just come back." With- <laughs> come back. Yep. <laughs> make sure come it's back fresh. With- make sure, yes, the fresher the better. That you know, if they fresher, the thicker the better. The thicker, you can't the find the celery, get carrots. That was a celery crunch, though, dude. Oh, yeah. That was not a carrot. Yeah. Anyway, but um, too too layered to be a strict carrot one, <laughs> right? And we, but we also get, um, you know, we also get the sit down between uh, between Riley and, and uh, Pruitt, where you know, one of the rare times where you know where Pruitt loses his shit and like you know he's screaming at him like, "Don't lie to me!" Like you know, how did you know how, so how did good. you feel about? That? And because he was he even in his moments of like fire and brimstone sermons you know he doesn't get to that level it's it's really kind of shocking that he just goes off on him like that it's very jarring 
because it's because he's trying to get him along. He's, you know, I don't want to say like seducing. That's not what the point of that scene is. But he is trying to get Riley to a place where, you know, he needs him to get over the hump and join him where he is. And Riley is holding on to a handful of things and he's just losing his patience with him. And it's, you know, and it's, it's, again, he doesn't like get disfigured or anything. It's not, you know, a horror scare, but it's so jarring for somebody to go at one level. And then suddenly you're at a whole other level and the camera's close up on him. And he kind of gets out of his chair a little bit. Like he's going to punch Riley. Like it's, it's very dynamic. This is this is why, like, you know, and I don't I do not disagree with Robert when he talked about, like, you know, some of the a lot of the monologuing in, in scenes with with the characters monologuing in this series can get into self-indulgent territory. I do not disagree with that. This is but, the Matrix argument, isn't it? Where people, especially the second one, you know, the architect, the the. Friend. No, that was shit. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, the I think we can all agree the architect speech from the second Matrix movie has got to be the most self-indulgent crap. I hear what you're saying. Ever built. I hear what you're both saying, but consider this. I love my dumb. <laughs> I was going to say, I just realized it has been way too long and you haven't been able to, or you haven't played a sound effect yet. Something was lacking. Trust, trust me, we're, we're getting to the, we're actually getting to the most self-indulgent right. bit of stuff. Oh, uh, oh. The, the architect makes, if you know anyone who does computer science stuff, watch that scene with them and they follow, like everything he says makes sense. Yes. Yeah, everything he says it makes makes sense. It's just it doesn't stop obnoxious. the fact that it's, it's annoying. Yeah, it's, it's still obnoxious. annoying. You were saying about so Loki. Uh, <laughs> this is why I need to be on more episodes. I need to follow. <laughs> I need to follow more of the running gags. Um, what I was saying. What, what I'm trying to say is, um, if I put myself in the in, in the shoes of you know Mike Flanagan wrote and directed every single episode of the series, it's his words being spoken by these actors with him behind the camera or with him you know like orchestrating the whole thing and it's something that we also talked about previously uh, uh when we talked about silence of the lambs it's not i don't want to get into you know comparing these the performances on the same level but it's the same idea of if you feel if you put yourself in the shoes of of whatever whoever the filmmaker is you're behind the camera and you've got these actors and you feel like you're really getting something out of them you feel like you're getting a particular kind of performance you don't want to turn the camera away. You don't want to cut it. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to edit a minute out of it. And even if it may be beneficial to do so, maybe even if it benefits the, the, the overall story to do so, you know, you have to, you know, there's a certain element of, you know, killing your darlings when it comes to that sort of thing. And if you have as much control as, you know, Mike Flanagan obviously did, and you see that you're getting this out of these people who are speaking your dialogue, who are speaking your monologues, who are, you know, acting in front of your cameras, particularly in scene. in, in this is, this is one of the scenes that I can point to where I say, like, if, if I was directing the scene, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have cut a thing either. And there are other scenes like that where it's like, you, you want to get everything because it's so good. The tension is so good. The performance is, are so good that like you you're loath to figure out what I can what could I take away from this that wouldn't uh, wouldn't destroy the whole scene. Um, so I get it. I get it. I get why you know why it can be too much of it. 
will, you know, get into overindulgent territory. But I also get why you want to just, you know, leave the camera and linger on it and do, you know, that that close up, you know, that zoom in tracking that he does a lot in this show. He does it a lot. But I understand why you would do something like that. And it's because, uh, you know, he captured lightning in a bottle with some of the performances yeah. you got from these actors. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the story Ben referenced, in Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Demi had shot a flashback sequence with Clarice leaving the uh, stealing a lamb and leaving the ranch. That is uh, the story that Clarice tells Hannibal the last time they see each other. And after then shooting that, he then later wound up filming uh, the scene between uh, Hopkins and Foster. And after seeing that, he apologized to the second unit director for shooting those who shot that sequence and said, I can't use them. If I cut away from this, they'll run me out of the director's guild. <laughs> like, I, I can't cut away from these performances. Keep going, Rob. What else did you think about this episode? We get some decent enough stuff here. The stuff between Aaron and the sheriff is okay. Uh, the sheriff's a little bit of a... I like him, but they wind up rushing him because they don't. there's big pieces of his story that get rushed through because they have to get... They have to service the overall story. Like, we have seven episodes. We don't have... If you have another episode or two to play around with, maybe he gets more, maybe he gets more nuanced. But he does good work with what he is given when he's given it. He's. You also forget he exists from time to time, just the way the story plays out. Uh, I liked the stuff between uh, Father, uh, between you know, the Monsignor and Riley as Riley's coming to terms with the fact that, well, I can't ever get a tan. <laughs> uh, when he try, when he first tries to go out and, and Pruitt has to run after him and yank him back in as he's now covered in second degree burns. Like, okay, those will heal. Just sit very out. well. It's very well staged too, by the way, where he just jumps out of the out of the doorway, yanks him in, and, and slams the door by. Something else I noticed. Uh, you, you mentioned um, when Pruitt goes from his normal, like you can see him getting a bit more agitated. His jump from his normal cadence to yelling is wonderfully foreshadowed by his physical movements more so than anything he does vocally. Mm -hmm. uh, and. When that's done right, it's the best thing in the world. I mean, there's a very nice contemporary example if you happen to watch professional wrestling, and God help you if you do. But what there every so often right now, Roman Reigns will snap and yell at somebody. Mm -hmm. And when he does, they freak out because yeah. Roman, Roman is here. He's here, and he's here. And even if something doesn't quite go his way, you know, Brock Lesnar's music hits, and Paul Heyman looks like he defecates himself, and Roman just goes... All right. <laughs> and then he gets a little bit frustrated at Paul Heyman at one point and snaps at him in this. And Roman can yell, man. He's got a wonderful deep voice for yelling. And he goes from, no, Paul, I need you to fix this. And I don't quite trust you right now. And Heyman goes, but, but my tribal chief, I'm the wise man. And Roman just, oh, yeah, yeah, you're the wise man when I say you're the wise man. <laughs> and Heyman just, ah, don't hit me. It, it's it's amazing and you get a lot of that vibe here he goes from i'm here and i'm here and i'm still here i'm still here come on i'm still here i'm still trying to keep it together and what are you taking so long for <laughs> and it it's a really wonderful performance when those two have their discussion that bit of you know monologuing at each other works wonderfully and they both perform it very well and it's a great sequence 
And then Bev shows up. And <laughs> Bev so badly wants to be the head religion in charge. And yeah. part of her, part of the subtext of her character is I'm a woman in the Catholic tradition and there are things I must do and, and, and roles I must attend to. But boy, do I really want to be the priest. And, you know, and, and by the end of this, she has her moment in the sun, which is then <laughs> utterly undone. Nice, um, nice choice of words. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, wait a second now. There we are. <laughs> I regret every day that I introduced you to Pinkie Pie Clips. <laughs> you were saying, madam. I see a lot of people like Bev. Uh, mm. Again, it's like, I left the church years ago, but I am from a family of Catholics. And it's the concept that they don't just want to be right. They want to be recognized for how faithful they are. They basically want a sign that what they've been doing is right. And everyone who has mocked them, insulted them, told them they're wrong they're all going to hell they're going to go to go head first into the lake of fire they're, you know hold your for, nose they're looking for validation and reassurance exactly that is what bev wants more than anything and it's clear she wants to know and again this is very common especially with the idea of people who really do think that we're going to see the second coming of christ that we're going to get the end of the world that you know we're building up to this they really think that they're going to get saved and everyone else who is not on the exact same level as them is going in the opposite direction. We don't have enough time to discuss this fully. So I will just kind of throw this out there as food for thought, but we really can't spend too much time discussing it. The, sh the show's meditation on will your faith be rewarded and the internal struggles that people go through. You, you go, you go through your life and you sacrifice and you attend to the tenets of your, uh, of your faith, of your religion. And then there's that moment of personal crisis, internal crisis of, is everything I'm doing going to truly be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven? Or am I just fooling myself and watching everybody give into every Sodom and Gomorrah vice there is to, get, to, to give yourself to, only to have nothing happen and be worm food? And people really struggling with that. And the show speaks to those things. And I think yeah. it speaks to it really well. Robert, um, go ahead and finish your point, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to read the synopsis for the last two episodes. We'll have one big discussion, and then we'll call it a night. Go. Uh, well, as a very religious person, not always living up to my faith, but... I swear I wasn't setting you up for that. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> I, I absolutely believe you in that respect. Mm. It is. It's a... And I'm not Catholic. Uh, I don't say that to be negative towards Catholics. I, I'm just not i'm L i'm a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and if and i see i do see that though you know i i see the people who yeah you know, like i said a lot of the religious people they talk a big game mm -hmm. and then suddenly you're left with oh i'm going to die and that reality hits you and then what you know, then do you spend your last minutes trying to dig a hole in the beach to save yourself or do you spend it con fairly convinced about your belief system and surrounded by friends and family who love you like like you know that's that's kind of the ultimate thing there and you know death being the great equalizer in that respect and how much 
you try to avoid it in some respects. It, it's always an, it's always an interesting bit when it comes to stuff like this. Father Paul is like, I, I want to, and he gets into this in the next few episodes, but I can stop you from dying is a, operates in direct contradiction to most Christian theology. The point is not to live forever here. This is a temporal experience. I don't want to get into my religious philosophy here, but you're a spiritual being whose existence stretches farther back than this blip on your path throughout the eternities. This is a moment. The the vampire always has kind of represented the temptation to forego the fear about, well, maybe I'm wrong, to get this forever. And it, so, again, where do you fall on that scale? Where, it, How strong is your faith when it comes to that? Because that's all you've got at the end of the day. I mean, I think my slight tangent, but I think my favorite discussion about faith actually comes from how the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy killed God. <laughs> if you're not That is one of my favorite bits from that's my favorite book and that's one of my favorite bits from that book. For those of you not familiar, there exists a creature in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy called the Babelfish and you shove it into your ear and it wraps around your brain and you can then speak and then you can speak and understand every language. So there's no issues with communication. <laughs> this thing has no there, and there's no scientific reason for this thing to exist. This thing's existence is in fact proof that God exists because only God would create this. There's there, there's literally no evolutionary benefit to it. The problem is that God exists because we have faith. So if you prove him, if you prove he exists, you no longer need faith in God. Ergo, God dies, and it's <laughs> it's the fun. It's hilarious. Man then uh, says, "Wow, that was funny." Then proceeds to prove that black is white and gets killed at the next saber crossing. So long and thanks for all the fish. This is also day one of logic. If you happen to take that in college, yeah. And so it, it always does present that interesting dynamic. And I have a minor issue with uh, the Monsignor because we're going to get a bomb dropped on us in episode seven about him. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that I kind of realized. You, know, you, you, Mr. Flanagan, you had this in your head almost more as a novel, and you adapted it from your head to the screenplay, and 98% of it works really well. But I feel like we need, like, if you're going to drop that particular bomb on us, I think that that would need a bit more discussion than a handful of sequences at the very end of your show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with you about the ending. I, I love it. It's beautiful. There's an interesting contrast that takes place between Riley's death here and, spoiler, I suppose, for in a couple of minutes from now when Mark goes over it, Aaron's death in episode seven. When Riley dies, he has what would be he, the guy who you know is the avowed atheist and who's expressed position on when I die, I'm going to become one with the cosmos. For, to the extent that my brain continues to function. And then, even then, because matter can neither be created nor destroyed, nor can energy be created or destroyed, I continue to persist in this ephemeral state. And I'm, yeah, sure, you and every other. And I, I've heard that speech way too many times, sorry. <laughs> he doesn't have that experience. He has the religious, he has the spiritual experience. He has the moment when the person that he wronged most in life shows up to greet him as he passes and it's 
uh, again, this contrast with Aaron, who has more his methodology of dying. So it was a little bit, it was a nice little bit of poet, visual poetry that the atheist had the spiritual death, whereas the spiritual person had more the kind of cosmic, almost cosmic horror atheist death. It's also, if I may say, a bit on the nose for, you know, liberal left-wing commie Hollywood that hates religion. Eh. I, I Look, it, it is, I don't care particularly, I'm just pointing it out. Well, it would make, I would agree with you more on that particular case if that had been Riley's death as well. Mm-hmm. The fact that it le- the fact that this show leaves that a little bit ambiguous, I actually kind of appreciate the restraint when it would have been very very easy to go that extra. Like this, I'm show, not saying it's the Connors. I'm just saying it's there. <laughs> this show does a. Uh, it would be very easy for this to be a show about damning religion. Sure. And to its credit, it's not. No. This is a, this is about the dangers of zealotry, and zealotry mm-hmm. comes in all forms and all fashions. They chose to use the Catholic Church here. The Catholic Church is a fairly easy whipping boy. No, and, and I, I don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's without restraint. I'm saying th- th- there's definitely an editorial point of view, and they actually couched it very, very well and used a lot of restraint so that you didn't lose an entire portion of your audience that is offended by such things. Yeah, that, that's fair. Uh, this is probably the best episode of the whole series. I think if you go just like by the hour or so that it runs, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm somewhat with you on the, uh, on the army of God speech. It's not as novel to me. And I think that's largely down to my religious traditions. Like when I, uh, and I, I don't, I Going deeper than that would require a bit me me explaining the LDS culture in ways that just are not relevant yeah, to the discussion. We do not have time. <laughs> All right. Not, <laughs> not the first time I've heard a religious leader from the pulpit extort the use of musketry. <laughs> Fair enough. Books uh, six and seven, The Act of Apostles, and Revelation. Aaron returns to the island after witnessing Riley burn to death and tells Sarah what is happening. Sarah shows Aaron the de-aged Mildred and how our blood samples burn under the sunlight. This is a phenomenal scene, by the way. I love Sarah's problem. I love. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say I love Sarah's speech about germs. That that mm-hmm. was a really really good speech. Yep. I've I feel like I've heard that in a in these almost the exact same way in in the sense of why a lot of women were were dying in um were dying before the. Uh, the hand washing thing. I feel like somebody else used it too in something I um, watched. You ever seen the movie Twelve Monkeys? I have. Uh, there was a similar speech done by Brad Pitt's character when he talks mm-hmm. about how uh, what is considered sane is basically what's in what's popular opinion. Because the same thing. It's like yeah, it talks about how it's like people then people came along saying there are these germs things, and right. everyone's like that's crap. So. I believe you. It's there. I, it must have been something I've watched recently because I feel like I just heard this. But it doesn't matter. Um, theorizing that Father, Father Paul is including medical miracles via the wine at church, she relays her suspicions to Sheriff Hassan, who refuses to investigate the church, fearing, fearing further alienation from the locals. You ain't just whistling Dixie, pal. No, he Aaron, ain't. Aaron discloses Riley's death to Annie, who refuses to believe her. Uh, Aaron, Sarah, and Mildred attempt to get the ferry to the mainland, but discover May- Mayor Scarborough has sent the ferries away and witness Sturge locking down the fishing boats. The night before informs the church, go- the night before Easter Mass, Sturge cuts power to the town and sabotages the cell tower. 
At mass, Father Paul reveals that he is Monsignor Pruitt to the residents, dun, 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 before unveiling the angel to an awestruck congregation. Pruitt informs the churchgoers that they all have the angel's blood in their veins ah! and encourages them to drink poison to die and be reborn. Several residents drink the poison, including Lisa's parents, Sturge, Uker, and Ali. Mildred shoots Pruitt and is swooped out of the church by the angel. The undead churchgoers resurrect and attack those who haven't drunk. Stupid show. Who haven't drunk the poison. Ed is turned while Aaron and Hassan Lisa, Sarah, Warren, and Annie escape. Aaron shoots Bev, which is awesome, by the way. Before, Let me just stop right there. A show like this, utilizing the end of conversation by shooting somebody. How wonderful that is. And, I, and it's one of those things where it's like, I rarely see something in the fictional world anymore that I'm like, oh, I kind of wish I could do that in real life. Just to <laughs> numb to a lot of things. But the ability to just shoot a motherfucker to end a conversation. At work, on this podcast, anywhere, <laughs> just be like, instead, you know, instead of fucking this, uh, this thing, get with it. Yes, get over it. I just pull a nine millimeter and be like, boom. Uh, Robert's the only one not laughing. <laughs> later, you know, they wake up and they're like, and another thing about Captain America's shield, I must tell you. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Um, I, just, I, I just love that scene, not only because, yeah, it's like, we're all like, yes, thank you. But they know that it's not going to stop her. She's got the angel blood in her. She's going to resurrect. And they're just like, this is just buying us a few minutes. Boom! She's not the only one they do it to, is my point. It's like, mm -hmm. It becomes a like running gag now. It's just like, do you have a minute to talk about goth chicks and fishnets? And boom! You know, it's just like, it's everywhere. Um, that was a TikTok joke, everybody. Anyway, uh, as a resurrected Bevan Sturge unleashed the undead churchgoers onto the remaining townsfolk. The now-turned-Mildred reunites with Pruitt. The two were lovers years ago, and Sarah is their daughter. Pruitt confesses that he brought the... kind of think that's something that should have been discussed more <laughs> along the way, just throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, he, Pruitt confesses that he brought the angel to the island to rejuvenate Mildred so the two of them could have a second chance to be together. Meanwhile... God, that speech, that speech broke my heart. When he the, sits, when he's sitting there on the with her going, you know, a sec, me being rejuvenated is nothing. Genuinely getting a second chance, mm -hmm. like that's something truly miraculous. Like that got me. This, this, the way he's practically crying, where he's saying, "I would have ripped this collar off for you if you had only asked me." Yeah, does speak to um, regret and love lost in a very nice way. Meanwhile, the few remaining unturned townspeople on Crockett Island set fire to the boats to prevent the turned out churchgoers. From leaving the island and spreading their contagion to the mainland hoisted by their own batad they were bev leads the turned churchgoers on a crusade across the island it's fucking amazing killing anyone they can find pruitt horrified by violence denounces bev and she in turn denounces him as a false prophet like you do bev orders her followers to burn down everything on the island in a bit of a short-sightedness except for the church and town recreation center which she intends to use as a shelter for the turned churchgoers during the day. Sheriff Hassan, Sarah, and Aaron attempt to burn down the church like you do and rec center, but Sturge shoots Sarah. I, again, this just keeps happening. Bev mortally wounds Hassan, and the angel attacks Aaron because pro wrestling triple threats. Aaron repeatedly slashes its wings as she... This was the most romantic death I've ever seen captured on film. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. Erin repeatedly slashes its wings as she dies to prevent it from escaping to the mainland. Many of the churchgoers are appalled at what they have done to the town and abandoned Bev's cause. Because, of course, they do. 
Ali burned Ali burns down the rec center, leaving no shelter. There ain't no shelter here for the turn churchgoers while Pruitt and Mildred burned down the church after their daughter's death. As dawn approaches, the remorseful townspeople, <laughs> we may have gone a bit too far, led by Ann and Annie. Flynn well, that escalated it. quickly. <laughs> it's like in, in, in with the you know with the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> are we the baddies? Uh, having it must be the children that are wrong. Gather to be immolated by the rising sun. Ali and Hassan reconcile and perform <laughs> one last salah, with Hassan finally succumbing to his wounds mid prayer. Pruitt and Mildred hold hands and watch the sunrise while Bev desperately attempts to dig a hole in the beach for shelter. Lisa and Warren, who rode offshore to avoid the carnage, are the island's only survivors. They watch the angel attempt to fly away, but notice its wings are failing. As Bev, Ali, Pruitt, Mildred, and the rest of the island inhabitants die, Lisa tells Warren she can no longer feel her legs. Lisa and Warren watch the island succumb to the fires as Ash begins to engulf the sea. Um... I'm going to say, in the interest of time, I'll just say this. I was reminded of the book of Job and what it teaches us. Um, you know, the idea of, sure, anyone can be devout when they've got all the things and they have a rich life. Now take those things away and will they, and will they still stand with God? And that is what the book of Job asks, uh, asks us to consider. And that is essentially what is happening in these last two episodes. What will happen to the social contract in a society when you, when you remove the pillars of those things? Will people stand tall or will they resort to savagery and the show's point of view seems to be in they will initially probably resort to savagery but i think most people will will find their moral center and come to a place of peace and understanding before the eventual you know literal in this case turn to ash and dust um I'm going to, my final thoughts on this, and then we'll do, uh, we'll do our last round, Ben, Alexis, and then finally Robert. This got a little silly for me, and, and, and it's sort of the slow, slow, slow burn, you know, paranormal activity, we're rising, we're rising, and poof, big explosion. The big explosion, I think, was definitely earned, and I'm sure people loved it, and, you know, it's what I think what people reflect back on when they think about this series. For me, it was a little dopey. Um, that's just a personal thing. I'm, I'm not taking anything away from the craft of the show. I think it was well done. It just, you know, the point of view being like, well, let's let's remove all the pillars of social contracting and watch these people eat each other. And I'm like, uh-huh, I got it. Thanks. I, I get it. People are people can be shitty. Got it. Um, also, just kind of watching a vampire battle royal was not particularly interesting to me. Um, the the small moments in episode seven, you know. Pruitt and Mildred, that sort of thing. Um, Aaron, that I liked. And, and I think overall, it's the small moments and the engagement of characters and dialogue that I really enjoyed about the show, not the silly vampire stuff. Um, that's just me. Lastly, because uh, it was such an oddly shot scene, Aaron being killed by the vampire. First of all, credit to whoever did the sound editing on that. It's such a creepy sound. You know, it, it, it's it's the way that he's sucking uh, sucking her blood and everything, and she not she gently caressing the vampire's head so as it's not getting distracted by the slashing of its wings. I'm like, oh, that that is genuinely interesting to me, genuinely novel. I not think I've ever seen anything like that before, and I and I credit where credits due when I see something on in a television or movie I've never seen before. Um, the very last thing, just because it made me laugh. So Aaron is telling um, the doctor 
about what Riley said to her. And she's like, I know this sounds like insanity. I accept that. I'm sorry. And she's like, and she kind of has this Black Widow moment from Endgame where she's like, yeah, I get messages from a raccoon in space. Nothing surprises me anymore. And Sarah says something vaguely similar. Like, yeah, I keep, I haven't sent these blood samples to be tested because I keep setting them on fire in the sun just to be proving to myself that this is actually happening. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with you, man. <laughs> like, I get it. So it's things like, so that's the thing. Like, it's such a mixed bag for me because it's stuff like that that I really loved about the show. And then I think the stuff that I was supposed to love as, as, as a audience member who watches horror movies and vampire movies and stuff, I didn't really care about it. It was like, mm, sure, sure, whatever. Um, overall, I'm glad Ben suggested this and I've really enjoyed talking about it with you guys. And I'm glad uh, to have Ben on the show. And so here's Ben with his final thoughts. Here's me with my final thoughts. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I said, and you know, I like, I liked all. You know, when you do uh, a show like this, it's this much of a slow burn towards something, no matter what it is. Like, you, sooner or later, you have to deliver on it. Mm -hmm. um, sooner or later, there's got to be some kind of moment that you know that made the build up worth it, or that made the build up at least, you know. Uh, have something that it was building up to um so this is what it was the last let's say the you know like the last 20 minutes of episode six and then all of episode seven which i also will freely admit for a lot of the stuff that they ended up revealing in the last episode this probably should have been eight episodes at the very least that yeah. seventh episode could have been two could have been split in half and given a little bit more time to breathe uh, they threw a lot of stuff out, you know, mainly, you know, I guess, I don't know if we all agree, but like, yeah, the, you know, I, was it, um, Sarah being revealed as, um, Pruitt and, and Mildred's, uh, daughter. Is that it? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and see, yeah. what was that? <laughs> I'm not sure whose dog agreed with me on that. Oh, that wasn't my dog. Was right. My dog is currently trying to eat my wrist. Cleo, stop no. me. Well, well, that was Abby. She's happy. Well, Robert warned you about pocket bacon, so uh <laughs> no, um yeah, that reveal comes it's I don't I won't I will defend that it doesn't completely come right the hell out of nowhere. Remember when I said earlier that a lot of the foreshadowing was too subtle for its own good in the earlier episodes? This is an example of it. There's tiny hints. So there are hints that are so tiny that that can you know you almost can't fairly call it foreshadowing, Robert. Which... I think the only one that that sticks out in my mind after watching it was when she when uh, the doctor's talking with her girlfriend about how the priest used to look at her and like uh, and kind of like express occasional bits of like pride or disappointment just like from a distance. Uh, there, that's one, and um, that's. There you was a, there's maybe a little bit with just how much he fixates on making sure that uh, Mildred gets the sacrament each time. Like there's some people when uh, when Mildred kind of comes back into her right mind, when she's sort of healed enough to have all of her mental faculties, they kind of uh, sit down with each other. And um, we you know, we're meant to, as an audience, we're meant to think that, you know, she keeps calling him John because she doesn't recognize that it's a different person. When in reality, she she does recognize that it's the same person that she's known 
yeah. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, uh, that's actually one of my on, favorite bits from her character when they're leaving the church after his um, Army of God sermon. Yeah, that she, whole I don't and ever she want tells to go her, her again. Yeah, like I was so like I actually think I said out loud, "Well, thank God somebody sees it." Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's a moment. Um, there's a moment when they're. Uh, uh, when she actually is in her right mind and still recognizes him and they're sitting alone together and they say something like, you know, I have, there's so much I have to tell you. Like that's a hint somewhat like that. There's, there's a bit of familiarity in that interaction. Um, when right before Joe gets killed, he's looking at the picture of, uh, you know, the old newspaper clipping and he, you know, he remarks, you know, they, you know, you could be a son, you know, there were rumors for years that he wasn't exactly celibate, uh, in his younger years. Uh, that was a hint. I didn't catch that until, until I saw it the second time. Like I said, there are hints that are so tiny that like you, 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 it's almost cheating to call it foreshadowing, but they're kind of there to spot. If you're quick, you know, if you were really quick about it, or if you watched it on, you know, if you caught it at the second viewing, they're there. They're not another. They're real. They're not enough, but they're kind of. They're, they're still kind of there. Um, it's still needed. That revel. That that, that uh, something reveal, that big. Yeah, that reveal. Yeah. absolutely needed more room to breathe. And we needed them. Have... We needed Mildred when she's still like maybe on the mend, but still demented like talking a bit about how your father's not your father like they, oh, by, by the way that, like that by the way that what that did happen that was another hint oh, where, yeah. where she where sarah asks uh sarah asks uh asks her uh, what's my father's name and she pauses and sarah thinks that that she's pausing because she can't remember she remembers she just doesn't want to say the wrong person's name mm -hmm. that that also happens once again it's still not enough but it's there you know, things like that. Um, I, it's not so much the foreshadowing that I had a problem with, just the fact that, you know, that it kind of get the the, uh, the fallout from that gets, you know, gets dropped and that gets dropped on everybody and then dealt with and then swept away within the span of what, like 20 minutes in the, middle of the, in the middle of the episode. And it's like, you know, it's it should be this weighty, this heavy thing because it's the impetus for every single other thing that Pruitt did uh, that led to this night. And it's not treated like what it is, which is, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the inciting, you know, the inciting incident for this story. Um, it's not unforgivable, but it, it absolutely needed more time to, you know, to work better than the way it did. Um, you know, we start to, of course, uh, the little interaction between Riley's mother and Bev, like on her front porch where, you know, <laughs> that was great she, where, you know, she refuses, I, yeah, <laughs> where it's like, she's stalling, but it's also like, you know, I've got some things I want to get off my chest and I'm going to get them off. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to do two things at once. I'm going to give you guys a chance to escape, but I also really want really? to tell this woman off. No kidding. You just could see the joy in her face. Like, I'm going to say something to you. I've wanted to say for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Believe the phrases I'm going to tell you about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm kind of reminded there's, um, I don't know if anybody's uh, seen this before. I, I, I'm willing to bet everybody's seen the movie The Exorcist before. 
that's sitting here. No? No, Mark? You should. Cool. Mark's great. a wuss. He doesn't like scary movies. I'll have you know, madam. I've just not been properly motivated, but now they're doing another Exorcist movie, so it's on the schedule. Yeah. Another one? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. Anyway, <laughs> um, there. Uh, I have a particular version of the DVD of The Exorcist. It comes with, it, with, an, with an introduction by William Freakin, who's the director. Um, it's a quick, like two, like one or two minute uh, intro, and he talks about why he made why he made the movie and what it kind of means. And uh, I don't know if anybody's seen it before, but he talks about you know the, the movie and the novel that it's based on is kind of about he he characterizes it as as being about the mystery of faith, which is something that you hear that you actually hear a lot in it's part of Catholic Mass. As somebody who's you know uh, somewhat familiar with Catholic Mass and you know younger years uh there you know there's a refrain in catholic mass that that goes you know let us celebrate the mystery of our faith and um william freaking in the in the introduction to the exorcist um says that's that you uh you take away from from that movie what you bring into it and if you uh if you go into the movie thinking that you know the world is you know the world is a is a place worth having faith in and that uh you know your faith will ultimately be rewarded then that's what you will take out of it and if you believe that uh the world is an unjust place and and full of horrors and and full of uh you know casual cruelty then the movie that movie will also not do a whole lot to dissuade you from thinking that and that's kind of how i feel about the show this show in general you you i think it takes a i think it takes a little bit more of a stance on what it what what uh themes it's expecting to get across um <laughs> and um i know right yeah um <laughs> Ben, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead and keep talking, but guys, okay. I gotta get off camera for a second. Someone needs to go outside and stop eating my arm warmers. <laughs> Give me a minute. I'll be right back. Sure. Thank you, time. Um, I'll. Uh, should I continue? Yeah, yeah, no, no, please. All right. Um. Yeah, I think the the show takes a little bit more of a stance, but it all. Uh, Mark, you mentioned something a little, little while ago about um, whether or not you know the show deals with whether or not whether or not. Um, somebody whether or not faith is rewarded and what i kind of i agree with that but i also think that um the show also deals with in what ways in what ways faith is rewarded and that faith is not always necessarily rewarded in the way that you know the person uh practicing would expect it to be uh it's not always rewarded uh in a way that's immediately uh recognizable it's sure. not always why the word is faith and not something else. Right. <laughs> I think my favorite. I think my favorite lesson that I wound up having to learn a bit the hard way, and I think everyone does. If you pray at some point, you genuinely believe God's going to tell you no at some point, and well, you, and that's just kind of the way that is. <laughs> yeah, and um, also just that um, you know we see throughout the throughout the show like Riley's parents sort of you know feel the urge and, and and they they're able to kind of resist it in you know barely and they seem to come to grips with the fact that you know they you know they've 
they're sooner or later going to be compelled to do something that they can't uh, abide, that they can't, you know, c continue on with. And, you know, they, they choose, to, you know, eventually the rest of the town chooses to just sort of, you know, greet the, the morning sun. Um, everybody, of course, except Bev, because, um, <laughs> which, you know, you... Once again, the Game of Thrones uh, callback, that's uh, on the level of like Ramsey Bolton. You get just enough, you get just enough villain comeuppance to want to want to see more, but it's it's enough. You see, like you saw Ramsey, you, you know, the dog, you know, chomped down on his face and then that's it. And you saw Bev's face, you know, on fire for just that that second. And that's enough. I was like, you, you, you that's okay. Comeuppance has been. Let uh, you still feel Let's you still feel good about witnessing justice without, <laughs> yeah, without having I'll, to deal with the moral quandaries of watching someone else die and how that reflects on your own humanity. Oh, there's that. <laughs> All right. I also one last thing, like I, I, I don't think because Mike Flanagan doesn't seem to be big on on sequels or second seasons or anything. I don't think there's going to be another season of this show. No, there's they've, enough... announced that they've announced this is done. Yeah, his, ne his next project is already kind of set to come out. Yeah, yeah it's so, something based off of the Alphabet Girl and Poe, right? Fall, fall no. of the House of Usher. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, it was announced. It, it was announced. Oh, I, I know sorry, I'm thinking of something different. He's involved in this other thing, but yeah, but I, I thought for a minute, like I don't, I, like I said, you know, like like you guys said, like this is this story is one and done. If they they left enough, it seems like they left enough things open to where who knows. Like you see the, you know, the vampire flying away and it's understood that he won't make it to, to shelter before sunrise, but you don't see the, you know, you don't see him burn. So that was open. Um, yeah, he could totally sure. be Michael Myers and come back from the now, if, if I may, my interpretation of that was when her, when Lisa loses her healing, the healing of her spine, he's done. that that's the that's the inclination that's the thing that tells you he's dead yeah I'm, uh, I'm to 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 ben's point fair enough michael myers can come back True. i'm sure so can the vampire but to your point yes the, the, like the bigger question is if there's one vampire there are more there are like more. <laughs> I'm, the I'm, other... gonna, I'm gonna have hope and pray that there's a, that there's a modicum of self-restraint in hollywood that this really is one and done yeah, yeah. agreed See, I was under the impression that when she says she can't feel her legs, that means that the vampire blood is working its way out of her system. The doctor talked before about how if they stop drinking the vamp the the blood mixed with the sacrament, then uh, eventually they'll get better and the effects will wear off. Possibly. Yeah, so. there's that too. Ben, That's why. I, uh, just you know, I, I, you know, me. And the first time I saw this, I was like, the you know, I zipped through this this whole thing uh, very quickly. So maybe that's just me kind of wanting more. But like that wore off, and I'm kind of like, okay, this is this is this is good. This is this is what it is, and any more would probably not be not do it any good, and not do any you know any anybody else any good. Um, yeah, I said you know my impressions of of the whole thing uh, kind of, were kind of in line with that with what I had mentioned about the Exorcist introduction. Um, to some extent, you you take out of the you take out of the series the series what you bring into it, and you know um, it's and there's also a lot 
that it says about uh, everybody. Everybody kind of believes in their own way. Everybody kind of practices in their own way. And I was just talking about religion. We all practice our own, uh, you know, our own way of quantifying of uh of you know directing our own existence we all do that in our own way some you know some some do it through faith some do it through other means it's the show kind of had a lot to say about the different ways in which we kind of you know navigate you know existence and a lot of meditations on you know what happens what happens after that what happens during that and the horrible horrible things we might do to uh kind of stave that off kind of stave off the end of that existence so um yeah I, it uh and it spoke it spoke to the stephen king fan of me just in that uh you know it's uh it it's it gave a lot of characterization and a lot of uh, kind of intrigue to kind of sink your teeth into. Um, see? All right, Alexis, your thoughts on the last two episodes, final thoughts, wrap it up. Firstly, I just got to say this. The scariest scene in this whole thing for me was not the vampire drinking the blood. It was not any of that. It was the scene of everyone in the church, not everyone in church, but majority of people in the church willingly going for the poison while all these while these people while other people like lisa and aaron are trying to talk him out of it the look on lisa's face as she's begging her mother not to drink it and her mom's going no no we'll do it together it's okay that sent shivers down yeah. my back that was that was terrifying just to see something like that it it really is so scary and i think that's what you know flanagan does so well with his with what he does horror it's that he he does supernatural and he does supernatural well but what really scares us with his work is that we recognize a lot of it well, what flanking gives us is relatable and it's something that we can easily see happening in our lives and it is terrifying yeah you know, so that that moment there, I mean, I hate it. I, I was practically crying a little bit just watching Lisa plead with her mother not to go through with this. Some real life precedent for the for mm -hmm. that particular scenario. Exactly. Uh, going back to what you guys were saying earlier uh, again. Sorry, Ben, if I touch on something that you've already talked about while I was taking care of freaking frack here, I apologize. Um, I will. But thank you. yeah. But yes, Annie's speech when she's finally telling Bev off was great. I love just the whole, again, it comes down to the fact that I love the beverage. She says, God loves me as much as he loves you. And I know that that bugs the hell out of you. I love that bit. I just love that she finally gets right down. Because yes, that is what Bev wants. Again, she wants to be the one who is right. And that little bit of a speech she gives when there's one of the guys who turns up uh, was not a churchgoer. But he was a good man, and uh, what's his name? Sturge uh, saved him. He's like, he's always been nice to me. I didn't want to watch him die. And Bev says flat out, no, he never came to church. He doesn't get to go in. And she's giving him that little speech like, oh, you could have saved your family if you had come to the church. It was 
it, it's heartbreaking because you're watching this guy cry because his family's dead and he's just completely lost in the moment and you want to strangle bev because she is she's loving this she is loving this whole i'm right and because you didn't do what i did you have to suffer and that makes me happy and oh my god it's it's a nightmare it really is but yeah i absolutely loved it i love that they uh previously established with the vampire that when he's feeding he doesn't really he either doesn't feel pain or he doesn't acknowledge pain because you got the scene with him sucking on i, I think it was like an episode or two ago he was drinking blood and someone shoots him it's that and episode. yeah and he's just like eh, screw you you know and he doesn't so the idea of aaron slashing his wings while he continues to feed is believable and it's i thought that was well set up that he would not notice that really like that yeah, they literally had to light him on fire to get his attention <laughs> it is a great way to get someone's attention you want to be bothered while you're eating what do you want to do and it's like, I got my mouth full. Do you mind? <laughs> um, anything else, Alexis? If not, we'll uh, we'll start to close up. The ending scene is very haunting and very beautiful. And I am not one to support organized religion, really. You know, I've had my thoughts before that. But I am very glad that the show went out with the majority of the townspeople singing a hymnal and finding peace to find peace as they died to be yeah that was a great bit and i thought it was a really good way of showing that the, sh the series is not anti-catholic it's not anti-christianity it's not anti-religion the idea of them finding still holding their religion true to themselves and holding on to that to hold to find peace was very moving and i really liked it that's a beautiful it's a genuinely beautiful hymn mm -hmm. there's there's a reason that i mean the the scene was based on what really happened, but there's a reason that's what was played by the musicians when the Titanic was sinking, right? That's right. I forgot that was the same song. You you mentioned the music, Alexis, and um, if you like the music, you can actually find it on AmazonMusic.com. And I don't know if you know about this, Robert, but if you're interested in streaming that album for free, there's a link provided in our description of this podcast where we're giving away free 30 days of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. You can check out the soundtrack to Midnight Mass or uh, other soundtracks to shows we've talked about, like uh, WandaVision. I'm not going to sing it again. Uh, one, Thank one, you. The one time of me singing uh, Agatha all along was good enough. Um, but if you've enjoyed my singing... And you want to hear the songs that I'm butchering, uh, you can hear them all on uh, Amazon Music using our service. And if you uh, you keep it for 30 days, you don't pay for it, you like it, you can you, uh, you keep it, uh, you pay the monthly fee. If not, you can discontinue it, no fuss, no must, no contracts. But it's great, and it helps us out. Uh, and using any of our sponsors helps us out and keeps the podcast running. With that said, Robert, your final thoughts, take me home, baby doll. All right. You guys have talked about a lot of the positives, and I'm going to echo those and add a few of my own in a minute. But let me talk about a few of the negatives here. That's what we have you here for, sir. I know. <laughs> the most self-indulgent, protracted, needlessly long purple prose in this entire show is Aaron looking up at the sky as she's dying. I have never wanted a character to shut up and die more 
until I saw Rami Malek in a Japanese koi pond waxing poetic at James Bond. More tomorrow, on that tomorrow. Tomorrow. More on that tomorrow. tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. More on that tomorrow. It's... Uh, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I, I get what they're going for. And you could cut 40% of those lines and still get there. And it might actually mean more. That was, yeah, that was a problem. Here's my problem. Look, the blood bursting into flame. It's a neat trick. Uh, you know, I mean, I know how you do it. It's just sodium dropped into red colored water. Like, it's no big deal. It's still cool. Credit that it, that was a practical effect. Yeah. Here's my problem with this. When the, when the blood would just evaporate, I could maybe forgive what I'm about to say. When it does combust, we now, I now have to ask the following question. Am I really supposed to believe that in this town, for this period of time, this rural fishing-based town... None of these devout Catholic people, most of whom work with their hands for a living, cut themselves in broad daylight. I'm never supposed I'm supposed to believe that for this several day period of time, nobody pinched off a fingernail on a crab pot. Nobody cut themselves shaving. Nobody like it's I'm sorry. It's a cool effect and it's a well acted scene. It's a well written scene. You now have me questioning how these people live their lives. It might depend got... on how far along they were as far I, as... Uh, Alexis I, wanted to interject, so Alexis, do your 10 words or less there. I was going to point out that they did establish that fishing on the island was practically non-existent because of, I think it was an regulated. oil leak or something yeah. that happened a while back. So, but... I'm not going to appease Robert on this. So I, I basically halfway I said, oh, I give up. And I'm also <laughs> got, getting my dog shoving a sharp piece of plastic in my back. Go ahead, Robert. It, it's just one of those things that it felt like they wanted to make the scene, and it's a cool scene, and if you don't think about it too much, if you're me, this bugs you. If you're not me, it's a bit whatever. And fair enough. I'm me? <laughs> yes, you're you. And we are all together. Um, is there anything... There's some really nice little moments. Unfortunately, a few of them, I think, wind up being overwritten. I think my favorite example of this is in the last episode. They separate The true group separate. They send the teenagers out onto the water. Uh, at, they send them in one direction, and a couple of the adults go the other direction, and we're going to burn everything down, and we're going to make sure they can't escape, and everyone's going to die when the sun comes up. This is the plan, and I'm excited about this plan. I'm excited to be a part of this plan. Thank you, Bill Murray. And after they separate, there's a bit where a couple of them, because they only send out like the two teenagers, they send Riley's younger brother and Lisa, and everyone else is just kind of like, you guys are going to go do your thing, and then we're the ones that are getting, like, we know we're not getting out of this. Like, they, they've accepted that at this point. And there's this bit with a couple of them when they're, I think when they're trying, when they're uh, breaking into the gas pumps. And they just have this, mo a couple of them have this moment of realization. I guess we're never going to see them again, are we? And one of them goes, well, did you think, do you think they made it? And I think it's Aaron who looks back and goes, yeah, they made it. I'm deciding they made it. And it, 
I don't need that extra bit. Like, you already established that if we know we're never going to see them again, so whatever you tell yourself here is self-delusion. And it's still... It's still a great sequence. Like, it, that moment of... It was better when Aragorn did it. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it was technically better when Frodo did it, and he said, I suppose we'll never see them again. But d just that moment of, you know, we might have saved these two. I mean, there's a good... You know the odds are against them, but do you think they made it? And, well, we're going to die, so how about we choose to go out happy about this? Like, we did something good here. Again, and, it's a call back to faith and that yeah. they're saying we still have our faith. Um, the, di the dynamic between uh, Pruitt and Bev at the end is, I think, one of my favorites for a pretty specific reason. The Monsignor is, as we established, he's good intentioned. Now, good intentions will lead you one of two places and there's a pretty sharp fork in the road. But... There's a distinct fork in the road. The problem is that you get there via, like, a railroad tie shifting. It doesn't seem like all that much until you get to the destination. He clearly screwed up, and he realizes this at the end. And it, it does. It establishes him as more the tragic character, the well-intentioned one, for, you know, whatever you want to, whatever value you want to place on that. But he's also the one that still, he really believes this is a guy who believes he was touched by divine intervention. God meant for me to do this, you know, and misled. Sure. But he's not an evil guy. And when confronted with the reality of what he has done, he recognizes it and changes. Bev, by contrast, sees this as nothing more than an excuse to extend her own influence and power. And it, it's a nice, a little bit, very, very, little bit it's very the crucible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's very obvious in this respect, but it is very much what religion is supposed to be versus the people who abuse and manipulate and take advantage of the systems put in place. And I, I think that was well handled. Uh, you're right. I hadn't thought about it, about how much people's conversations get cut off via gunfire in this particular episode. <laughs> but uh, a few of them shattered. I approve of. <laughs> You get a little, um, is there anything else? There's a little bit of a back and forth with the, the sheriff's son, Ali, about what he's going to do. Initially, he drinks the poison and he comes back. And then when he sees how bat, how off the rails everything gets at the end, he decides, no, I've made a mistake. And he burns down their last sanctuary. Uh, yeah, Bev getting all of her stupid decisions at that particular bit kind of pushed back. And, like, there must be somewhere else we can go. You told us to burn everything. <laughs> Am I the only one that wanted? I'm sorry. Am I the only one who wanted Ali to say something to Bev for the fact that she was calling her, his father a terrorist as he lay dying? I'm sorry. I was just, you know, praying for it. Sounds like you called my father a terror. Just like it's like, what did you call my father? I don't know. Here's something. My, here's my only objection to that. That scene is so busy as it is. Yeah. It didn't need any <laughs> more stuffing. I'm not saying there wasn't you couldn't have done it, but then you have to do it differently because it's too busy as it is. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's a lot that goes on there. Um, I think if there's anything else I wanted to say. Um, ultimately, I'm with you guys. I I kind of hope they let this stand. It's great for the most part. I mean, I have issues with it, but nothing. Very few things are perfect. This was absolute. This is absolutely worth a watch, uh, especially if you're kind of so inclined to the. Uh, any of the you know, horror, thriller, drama genres, this has something for all of those. It has some great performances. 
Uh, you know, kudos. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to say Mike Flanagan can do no wrong, but he also is primarily responsible for adapting one of the Stephen King stories that I think was least adaptable, and doing so very like if you some Stephen King stuff is easily adaptable. Whether you succeed at it or not is another story. Some that you think is hard to adapt turns out to be the best. I mean, King himself was a little bit curious about how Darabont was going to squeeze a feature-length film out of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and he only created one of the best films ever. But two film, two of his stories that are really that he thought were essentially unadaptable, uh, one of which was Misery, and credit to Rob Reiner who created again a genuinely great movie. The other was Gerald's Game, and when that came out on Netflix, I watched out of initially just morbid curiosity, like, okay, someone took a stab at this. I'm curious how this is going to go, and he knew what to change. He knew how to change it, and he created a not perfect. There's a little bit. There's a few awkward points in there, but a genuinely great adaptation of that story that is fundamentally just a woman handcuffed to a bed for a couple of days trying to figure out how to get out and deal with her own shit. I gotta watch the... Let's see it's really it's good. It's good. It's good. If nothing else, you need to see it for Carla Gugino's performance. If nothing else. I, I hesitated just because knowing what that story is about, I was the same way. I'm like, how, how do you adapt it? Like, how do you make a movie out of this? Like... It's great, but and I'm just gonna say this: you're not ready for the gore. That that scene comes. There's one. Um, you've read the book. You know the scene. Yeah, but no matter how much you think you're ready for it, you're not. I'm a hardened individual. I was prepared. Robert, you have no soul. We've been. I over I have a soul. You just can't tweak it by showing partial deglovings. Wait, are, Damn you insinuating that I'm, are you insinuating that I'm Mungo? <laughs> I'm insinuating get on with it, and I already played that clip. All right, fair enough. Damn it, Cleo, <laughs> stop. You Sorry, guys. Clip, you don't need the clip where he punches the horse. You need the clip of never mind that shit, here comes Mungo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Flanagan is a... He's an endlessly... I think if nothing else, he's a very interesting filmmaker at this point, and... He's going to have hits, he's going to have misses, he's going to have missteps, but he's a guy whose work I tend to pay attention to when it comes out. So, I mean, he's executive producing some uh, something else, too. He's uh, a showrunner for, for a series that's coming out on Netflix, I think, early in 2022. Midnight Club? Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading about that. I, I that looks really good. I don't think I read any of those particular books, but I have read other Christopher Pike books kind of his young adult stuff when I was, you know, 12 or so. My my jump from Christopher Pike to Stephen King came rapidly. <laughs> no, this looks good. Heather Langenkamp is going to play mm -hmm. the doctor who runs the hospice. I caught that. Yeah. I'm excited. Right. With that, I think we are uh, just about done here. Um, yesterday, myself and Sean Comer review, did a really quick audio review of, um, for, quick for us, Halloween Resurrection. If you, if you, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many people uh, like Sean and I stuff. I'm sure some do. I've seen the numbers. May, uh, maybe you don't. For those of you that don't like the Sean and me stuff, just just listen to this one episode. About 20 minutes in, 
Uh, I submit for evidence to the prosec uh, for the prosecution to the judge uh, every single one of Buster Rhymes's dialogue <laughs> that I act out. <laughs> I don't pop Sean a lot, that... but he he couldn't breathe by the time I was done. Dude, that might that is the uh, that is the on trial equivalent of the uh, the prosecution at the Nuremberg trials having a film to show. <laughs> like, there's no coming back from the defense for that. I I told Sean on the podcast. I was like, I I very seriously considered doing the bit and then just going the prosecution rests, <laughs> and just not talking about the movie at all. But moving on. Um, tomorrow, uh, as a matter of fact, as we're recording this, I think it just aired. Roberts, uh, everybody loves a bad guy on slashers, uh, focusing mostly on Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. Um, and we're doing that because same for the same reason we did Halloween Resurrection, because this Friday, uh, Halloween kills the second part to the um, 20th, uh, 21st century Halloween trilogy. Um, Halloween kills is uh, on day and date on Peacock this Friday. So we're doing all Halloween stuff this week, except for when we're not. Like tomorrow, uh, myself and Robert Winfrey will be reviewing No Time to Die, No Time to Pee, No Time to Get Popcorn, No Time for I Ain't Got Time for the Pain, all of no, it. I, I believe what I said in the chat was no time to no time for the editing room. Yeah, no, I have no time for these shenanigans. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that, exactly. Find, um, that, find that clip, Mark. We will make use of it tomorrow. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. On the Metal Hammer of Doom, um, every October I like to do a bunch of cover albums. We're not getting to too many this year for a variety of reasons, but the one we are getting to is Monster Magnet, A Better Dystopia. It's kind of a fun album. Uh, Ronnie Adams, big Halloween fan, insisted that he had to do a Halloween show this week, and so I, of course, gave him his way. We will be doing an on-trial for the original 1978 Halloween movie from John who's Carpenter. Gonna, who's going to try and prosecute that? I don't know. It's probably just going to be a plea bargain. Um, and Dude, uh, that, No, that's the judge dismissing uh, the charges <laughs> with prejudice. Like... <laughs> Saturday, well, I'm in WasabiCon in my uh, in my Otakawa cosplay with my daughter. Um, we'll be re doing a re-air of our uh, Evil Dead trilogy, and you can check out some of Benjamin Cologne's um, title card art that he did for that. It's actually hanging up Ooh. in my house. It's one of the ones that we bought from him, or uh, he gave us, or I don't remember what the conditions were. Any case, the Evil Dead trilogy this weekend. I don't remember either. <laughs> um, I Remember and the then, picture, it's darn good. Dude, it's, yes. you recreated the, the creepy animatronic deer head in all its glory. Like, It's my favorite it's, part. Good stuff. The and then finally on Sunday, uh, Ron's Gone Wrong comes to theaters exclusively. It's the last uh, film to be either produced or distributed by 20th Century Studios and one of the other smaller studios therein. Uh, so the link there is Robert and I, in one of the few times we ever agreed on a film and were like 100% positive on it, oddly enough, was the Peanuts movie. Dude, and... I, don't, I don't trust anyone who has a bad thing to say about that movie. I just can't. So for, those of you who are like, so for those of you who are like, I like Robert and Mark and everything, but they're a little too hard on the beaver and they don't like films neither. Um, so <laughs> I love that look. Ben, thank you. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those. This is one of those rare birds where we were super positive on it. So if you're looking for Robert and I to be super happy and positive and enjoy a movie thoroughly, I have nothing bad to say. Check out our review of the Peanuts that airs this Sunday right here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Uh, Benjamin J. Cologne is an artist. 
He draws things. He puts them on the internet for you to, to for you to, uh, to for you to look at. What else do you do, Ben? Uh, nothing. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll keep this short and simple. Um, this is why I distilled all of my uh, social media and uh, creative uh, output down to uh, one one destination or one username. I'm Epic Benjamin J on all of the things that includes. That includes Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, and Discord. Um, and you can find me on all of those things if you so choose. I still do the, my Sketchbook Saturday sketches. I have not missed a single Saturday since 2014. Uh, and I have no plans on uh, missing any Saturdays uh, anytime soon. I want to get back into streaming a little bit more often. Um, I haven't streamed on Twitch in a while. I'm trying to reconcile the uh, full-time day job thing with finding time to stream, but um, I'd like to get back to finishing. I'd like to get back to finishing this. Uh, More Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I did this one at, you know, Megacon. I don't know if you guys remember this. So I want, I'm I'm working on a Sinister Six series that I want to be able to make prints of, and I'm trying to stream that when I can. And I want to uh, make that a more, uh, more frequent thing hopefully i'll stream this week uh you know in the evening just keep an eye on all the social medias and i try to give as much notice advanced notice as i possibly can and i usually stream for long enough to where if you come in late you didn't miss a whole lot so yeah once again epic benjamin j on all of the things and uh i look forward to seeing all of you or any of you or anybody listening and watching this there Yep, Benjamin's going to be back, as we said before, on Jesse's source material come December for a four-part episode of Spider-Verse, and he'll be on with myself and Sean to do a special Long Road to Ruin right before the new Spider-Man movie where we compare all three Spider-Man movie franchises. So that'll be an interesting... uh, I've never done that before. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it, but we're going to do it somehow. At the very least, we're going to ramble for at least an hour, and then I'm going to stop recording. That's what we do best. We may mention the term Spider-Man once or twice. Um, speaking of Spider-Man, she makes jewelry and she sells it too. She also hosts a trivia game. She's going to tell you all about it. Alexis Haina and her dogs. Yeah, sorry about this, guys. Apparently, these two have decided that I've been ignoring them for long enough. So they t- we are at about I, the we are at about the runtime of No Time to Die right now. <laughs> <laughs> I had to remove the arm warmers. Okay, she thought they were socks that she could chew on them. Cleo's a bad habit that she thinks socks are like the ultimate tug of war tool. So dog love o'clock. Yeah, it's you, it, it's Always. basically the it's the it's that thing with the uh, uh, greyhound puppies from that one episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> That's me with this dog. <laughs> anyway, so yes, first and foremost, we just recorded uh, October's Tripped Up Trivia. Jesse Sarcher and I co-hosted. Theme was horror movies. We had a lot of fun. Uh, that's going to be airing at the end of the month, along with a uh, special episode of Source Material that Jesse and I did, where we look at Nightmare on Elm Street crossover with Power Rangers. <laughs> This is a real thing, Heck and yeah. it is so hilarious. Not to mention, it's clear that the uh, guys who did this are huge fans of the Saban Entertainment because we're also getting appearances from Common Rider and Big Bad Beetleborgs, and even freaking Pinhead and the Cenobites are showing up. This this comic is just let's clash everything together. It's the crossover event that nobody know they knew they wanted. Mm. 
In addition, yes, Honeysuckle Rose Creations, where fashion meets fandom at the intersection of geek and chic. Uh, we've just uploaded a bunch of new products to the store, handful of brand new... Oh, will you let me freaking talk? God, this dog. <laughs> um, we just uploaded a bunch of brand new Monopoly and Clue bracelets to the shop. Our new Haunted Bracelet, or I'm sorry, Haunted Mansion Charm Bracelet is up. We have new cufflinks inspired by Castlevania and the upcoming Peacekeeper, or Peacemaker series that uh, okay. we will be hearing more about on the 16th when DC Fandom uh, or goes live. Uh, you can always find our stuff on our Etsy and Handmade at Amazon shops. I'm slowly getting, you know, either bitten or clawed to death here, so I'm going to wrap this up fast. Uh, you can always follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is Honeysuckle Rose Creations, the intersection of geek and chic. All right, Robert, I hear you paint houses and watch SmackDown and then write about it. Yeah, one of those informs the other. <laughs> Hmm. Um, I cover a bunch of stuff over at 411mania.com, AEW's Dark Elevation on Mondays. In fact, I will be wrapping up my report for that as soon as we're done here. I need to finish that. Uh, MLW's Fusion Alpha series that they're still releasing on uh, YouTube on Wednesdays. And WWE SmackDown on Fridays, in addition to occasionally being permanent on-deck man for coverage of other kinds of shows. So I might pop up here or there. Uh, I covered the UFC's event this last Saturday morning. It was just kind of a placeholder. It existed. They really didn't want to go head-to-head -head with Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury, which made sense. And then Mark and I got to do some live watch-along stuff for that. So if you're interested in us talking boxing, you can find that in the archives. We have a lot of fun. This Saturday, there's another mediocre UFC event that I will be covering, so tune in for that. If you're interested in mixed martial arts, I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. It records Sunday evenings and tends to go live Monday morning, sometime, uh, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, this last episode was a lot of me talking about Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury because I just don't care that much about Mackenzie Dern failing to do anything against Marina Rodriguez. And I really don't care about Aspen Ladd versus Norma Dumont. And that being a main event is a sad, sad state of affairs where one fight falling out away from another Andre Arlovsky main event in the year of our Lord 2021. God <laughs> help us all. <laughs> So you can get my full, but if you want to hear my thoughts on the individual fights, you can find them over there. Please do give it a listen if you're so inclined. I'll be back this coming Sunday reviewing and previewing. This coming week has a good main event, actually. It will be, next, so next Saturday will be uh, Marvin Vittori and Paulo Costa. It's a relevant middleweight fight, if nothing else. So we can look forward to that. Tomorrow, Mark and I will review the newest James Bond movie, No Time to Die. And boy, do we have thoughts. You have Let thoughts. No, Mark has thoughts too. He's confirmed to me. Yep. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us. Uh, very long tonight, but we had a lot to discuss. Um, and I'm really, Ben, you must pitch more things. You must be passionate about things and then tell me about those passions. And then we must share those passions with the world via live stream on Twitch. I shall. Indeed. For Robert Winfrey, Alexis Haina, Alexis Haina's dogs, and, the, and Benjamin J. Cologne and all of his autistry, I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>